I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio vs. the Martians. This month, Spider-Man. I don't remember the first time I encountered Spider-Man. I figure it had to be either his Secret Wars action figure from the 1980s, or his giant balloon in the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. But I can guarantee that before I could even read, I could probably sing some bad approximation of his 1960s cartoon theme song. Like anything that was created before I was born, I took him for granted. To me, Spider-Man had always existed. Unlike Superman and Batman, superheroes whose publication history goes all the way back to the 1930s, Spider-Man was created by writer Stan Lee and artist Steve Ditko in the pages of the 15th and final issue of a cancelled anthology comic book in 1962, only a decade and a half before I was born. For a kid, that sounds like an eternity, but today, it just makes me feel old. Martin Goodman, then publisher of what would become Marvel Comics, didn't have much confidence in the marketability of Spider-Man. The character was weird-looking, for one. He wore a full face mask with strange black-and-white lenses, and even though he shared the Man of Steel's red-and-blue color scheme, he didn't exactly cut a Kurt Swan-esque barrel-chested figure. Steve Ditko's Spider-Man had a wiry frame, and he often crouched in off-putting poses and clung to walls like his namesake. Even the way he moved around the city was unique, web-swinging from building to building like an urban Tarzan. But that isn't what made the character truly revolutionary. Spider-Man turned so many of the classic superhero tropes on their head. He was Peter Parker, a teenager, but not a sidekick. He becomes a crime fighter after the loss of a loved one, but their tragic death was Peter's own fault. He also worked for a major metropolitan newspaper, but not with a staff job. Peter was a freelance photographer for a gaudy tabloid and often barely paid the bills by selling photographs of Spider-Man to an obnoxious publisher who used them in a smear campaign against him. But the most innovative touch was that Lee and Ditko made the trials and tribulations of Peter Parker's personal life just as important as any of Spider-Man's battles against Dr. Octopus or Kraven the Hunter. What resulted was the creation of a superhero story as the greatest and strangest soap opera of all time. Being Spider-Man turns Peter's life into a serialized melodrama where he has to balance paying the bills and finding a date 
with stopping bank robberies and discovering that one of his greatest enemies is the father of one of his college friends. In 57 years of publication, Spider-Man has been cloned, had his identity stolen by one of his supervillains, become a high school science teacher, learned that the costume he brought back from outer space was a creature trying to possess him, cloned again, bullied by peers, grown four extra arms, stopped his Aunt May from marrying a supervillain, gotten married himself, lost that marriage in a pact with the devil, gotten godlike cosmic powers was briefly replaced as Spider-Man by his clone, became a tech billionaire, and quickly lost his fortune. He's dealt with everything from ulcers to amnesia, from alien invasions to steep medical bills. And through it all, totally out of his depth, misunderstood, flawed, and very, very human. It can be easy to forget how much this character has upended the entire superhero genre and influenced literally everything that came after his creation. The popularity of Spider-Man cannot be overstated, as he quickly became the Marvel Comics' de facto company mascot. Spider-Man has starred in literally thousands of comic books. He's headlined seven theatrical films, nine animated series, and appeared in live-action sequences on the children's program The Electric Company. He's been the subject of at least four separate breakfast cereals, and even a poorly-received Broadway musical. So strap on your web shooters and be sure to put film in your camera, because this month we're talking about my favorite superhero, Marvel's iconic wall crawler, the amazing, the spectacular, the friendly neighborhood, Spider-Man. Let's meet the panel. First, he's a past guest and one of the hosts of the View from the Gutters comic book podcast and the co-host of the all-new, all-different Marvel Comics history podcast, The House of Jack and Stan. Welcome to the show, Mr. Tobias Panchin. Thank you for having me. And he's a first-time panelist and the host of countless shows on the Fire and Water Podcast Network, including Batman Nightcast, Cheerscast, and It's Midnight, the Podcasting Hour. Welcome to the show, Ryan Daly. Thank you for having me. And countless, I mean, I think you could have taken the time to count them. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Nine, let's say. That's a a good estimate. If it's not there yet, it will be. And finally, (laughs) the carnage to my venom, Mm. the Robbie Robertson to my J. Jonah Jameson, Mr. Casey Doran. Thank you, Mike. Good to have you here, Casey. Yeah. So um, I want to open with you, Ryan. Um, this is a big picture question for everybody that I want to get into, but do you remember the first time you encountered the character of Spider-Man and what is your history with him? Uh, to answer the first question, no, I don't remember the first time because like you, and as you were explaining in your monologue, I I kind of consider Spider-Man to be one of those primordial superheroes that was just always there. Um, for as long as I can remember, as long as I've known what superheroes were, you know, on the DC end of things, like I feel like I've always known Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. They were always just there in the background somewhere. And on the Marvel side, Spider-Man, the Incredible Hulk, and Captain America. Um, it it probably would have been through some sort of merchandise. Um, I don't remember watching the cartoons, but I knew that they existed. So something about like the jingles or the songs got in my head. It might have been through parades. It might have been through bed sheets or other things. I did have the Marvel Secret Wars Spider-Man action figure. I got it not on the store off the rack, but like as a hand-me-down, like in just very poor condition. So that might have been it. But it's just, yeah, certainly before I was reading and collecting comics, I knew who he was. And I knew not only who he was, but I knew that he was important, that he was one of the stars because I knew who he was. So he must have been one of the most important comic book characters. Um, And then... 
once I did start getting into comics in the late 80s and early 90s, um, I was definitely, on the Marvel end of things, I was definitely an X-Men kid. I was picking up them just sort of at the height of their popularity. Oh, yeah, me but, too. But I was also, Spider-Man was, the, because he was the one that I knew about, he was the one that if I had an extra dollar fifty or something like that, I would take a chance on a Spider-Man book. Um, I believe, actually, and I mentioned this on one of my own podcasts, the first Spider-Man comic I remember buying uh, was from 1991, and it was the fourth and final issue of the Deadly Foes of Spider-Man miniseries. Oh, um, yeah. And, Mike, I know how much you like Superior Foes of Spider-Man, and this was sort of the the ancestor of that. Yeah, the, um, the less uh, hapless version. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. Um, and then I, I would get into like the main series, like Amazing or Web of or whatever was going on. Right around, I think I got in right before they introduced Carnage. Because um, for a long time, I did like that character. I liked him more than Venom. Uh, that's oh, because he so was more extreme. He was like a spikier, <laughs> angrier Venom. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And that, I was getting into comics just at the at the dawn of the spiky, angrier, more extreme era. So, you know, that was that was it. And yeah, so he, he's always sort of been there. And I would say that he has never been my favorite superhero but he's always been close. Like, I think no matter what or what I was into or when it was, if I made you a list of my top 10 Marvel superheroes, I think Spider-Man is always perennially at number six. He's always <laughs> just outside the top five. But That's a never very thought. specific number. <laughs> I, and, and because I've made this list a number of times, I'm not throwing this out as it's a, just okay. for instance. You're in a safe I've made space. Over, yeah, so, but he's always right outside the top five. But he is a favorite, and he's, he's a go-to. He's one that I can, if I read a Spider-Man book, I'm probably going to be entertained by it. I know that much, so. So, uh, Tobiah, what's your history with Spider-Man? Do you remember the first time you saw him? So, I don't I don't remember the first time that I saw Spider-Man, because clearly Spider-Man is omnipresent in our culture. Uh, I know that my mother has shared with me journals that she kept when I was a child of when I was about two years old, running around the house saying... I am Voltron, offender of the Umamurse, and I am Spider-Man and his amazing friends. Oh, you're all three. You're <laughs> a gestalt being. Apparently. Um, but I do have a very clear and very specific memory of the first time I encountered Spider-Man, and that moment being the moment that he became my favorite superhero always and forever. Uh, and so when I was maybe eight, I want to say, there was a summer day camp program in the local park, basically, to give parents a break from their kids for a few hours during the summer months when they were out of school. And it was split up. It was like seven, eight and nine year olds on Mondays and Wednesdays, 10, 11 and 12 year olds on Thursdays and Friday or Tuesdays and Thursdays. And then on Friday, it was all the kids. And every Friday would be a special like event day. You know, and so it would be like Wild West or Ancient Greece, uh, and all the counselors would dress up in costumes, and there'd be like uh, cardboard box mazes and special mm. events and themed games. And you know, there there was like a there was a little house where there was like a foosball table and a air hockey table and stuff. You could hang out there, or you could go out to the fields and you could play some kind of rubber ball game where basically they just have kids running back and forth in a field until they were tired. It was the most of what it was. Uh, And there was one day specifically where it was superhero day. And I would always go to the field to kick the balls. 
And so they split us into two teams. We were on the other side of the field and we were trying to get a ball to go somewhere. Details aren't important. And I was a terribly uncoordinated child. I could not do sports to save my life. And so I came up with a plan as to how I was going to contribute to this game as a little eight-year-old when there are like 12-year-olds running around. And so what I did is I stood in the back half of the field near our team's side, and I'm like, if anybody kicks the ball really hard, it'll come over to where I am, and I can just kick it back over there, and everybody will go, oh, Tobiah contributed. He's a good sports guy. (laughs) This was my cunning plan at eight. Uh, And in fact, that did happen. The ball got kicked way up in the air. It came down. It landed maybe... 10, 15 feet away from me. And I take one look at the ball and I'm like, all right, I'm going to run as hard and fast as I can. And I'm going to go and I'm going to kick it back. And at that exact moment, another child, an older, larger child, (laughs) clearly had the same idea on the other (laughs) side. And so he starts barreling towards it as fast as he can. And he's faster than I am. So he gets to it when I'm about five feet away. And... He kicks the ball and it comes flying directly at my head. And I don't know what happened after that because everything went blank. I assume Mysterio showed up, cast some illusions, maybe Green Goblin threw some pumpkin bombs. I don't know. But what I remember very specifically is waking up in the arms of Spider-Man as he is valiantly carrying me off the field. And in that moment... I loved Spider-Man, and I will always love Spider-Man. Oh, wow. Wow. Oh, uh, man. That, like, you can't top that. You can't top by being rescued by the actual hero. Um, Mike, you always have the thing where you say, why is it that uh, the things that we like when we're five are the things that come back as liking forever, but the things you like when you're a teenager, you look back and you're like, ooh, that was a bad choice. It was a terrible choice. <laughs> Interestingly... Um, Spider-Man was who I like when I was in my teens, not when I was five. And so now I kind of like, wait a minute. Well, why did I even like that? Why is something that I even liked? Uh, he was ubiquitous. Spider-Man was totally ubiquitous. It really wasn't for me. It wasn't until the sort of Fox television animation revolution, I guess, that started with Batman, the animated series and brought a bunch of comic book franchises to the fore that I really like started paying attention to him at all. Any, any comic book characters at all. I do remember seeing, uh, reading Spider-Man comic books at a young age, probably five or six years old because my dad loved Spider-Man. My dad, uh, was born in the early fifties. And so when Spider-Man came out, he was actually, he had a rare, uh, a form of bone cancer. And so he was in the hospital for like more than a year. And one of the things either his mom or the friends did was they got him comic books and he collected, from Fantastic Four number one all the way through to some point in the later 60s, I think. He had a huge he had a huge uh, uh, collection, and he loved Spider-Man. And so he had a few reprints around the house where I could actually read and see some of the really early sort of Stan Lee stuff. Um, so I was totally aware of what it was as, as, as a character. But it really wasn't until, like, Batman the Animated Series, X-Men, and then later they did, you know, they did Spider-Man as one of the Saturday morning cartoons where I was like, hey, Spider-Man's cool because... I'm doing nothing else on Saturday, and I love watching cartoons. Um, you know what? Aside from cramming for this panel, though, I really am not likely to seek out a Spider-Man comic. Not because I'm, like, a hater or anything. It's just I found that I'm... You know this. I'm, like, not a superhero comic book guy. I love comic books. I just can't, like, 
propel myself to be like, I'm going to spend another hour reading this, whereas I could be spending an hour watching a movie or something. Um, that said, I, there's a big monumental shift in sort of my my impression and my estimation estimation of what Spider-Man was with the Spider-Verse movie, which I'm sure we are going to talk about at length. So I think I think I'm a lot more of a Spider-Man fan because of that, but I just am not like I'm not going to spend much more time reading the books. So um, Spider-Man is really one of those three comic book characters, along with uh, Batman and Superman, who have been consistently able to carry more than one comic book at the same time. So uh, at one point, you know, you had Spider-Man appearing in The Amazing Spider-Man, and then he got the Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man, and he was in a reprint series for Marvel Tales, and he was for most of the 70s in Marvel Team-Up, and he could maintain all of these at the same time. And he's one of the few characters that are able to do that. So there's like a lasting appeal there to this character that people want more of him. So I guess my question for all of you guys is, is what do you credit to that character's appeal? What is it that makes Spider-Man so popular? So you've got comic book experts all around me. Um, I was reading a biography that someone had written in a reprint for Spider-Man about Stan Lee, and it credited him as coming up with the idea of having his characters be in a basically crossoverable world. Um, that's not that can't be true, is it? It was. I mean, at the time, I mean, Batman could meet Superman in a book, but if Superman needed to get a scientist on his side, the the Superman book would create a scientist character. And um, a Batman book, they'll go, oh, Batman needs to talk to like an astronomer for something. The Batman book would create a scientist. The thing that Marvel did is that it would have the same scientist appear in mm. both of those two different books. Like, they're like, I need a scientist. I'm going to ask Reed Richards. So there was a sense of the world that they share overlaps, even if they're not having a crossover and fighting the same bad guy. And that was pretty revolutionary. Yeah, yeah the um, the conception of the Fantastic Four came about semi-apocryphally um, when Martin Goodman was playing golf with somebody either at DC or DC's public um, printer basically bragging about what a huge success Justice League of America had been and Martin Goodman came out of this golf game and went directly to Stanley's office and said this comic book is selling like gangbusters we're going to steal that idea and we're going to have this superhero team and that out of that came, you know, the rest of the Marvel universe with that crossover quality and with them kind of all existing in New York City for the most part mm -hmm. and and really interacting with each other, not necessarily on like uh, this is the team book. This is where all the superheroes are, but just on a day to day basis where, you know, like uh, Mike was saying, Spider-Man might go, oh, I ran into something I don't understand. Let me go look up Reed Richards and get his opinion on this. Yeah, I need to. There's something involving magic in this story, and he ends up at Doctor Strange's mansion. And even if Doctor Strange is only there for a couple pages to say, oh, Spider-Man, I think this, I can read this spell off of you, um, there's a sense of I'm going to use a common universe that if a member of the Avengers picks up a newspaper, it might be the Daily Bugle. 
So, I mean, little things like that, um, the sort of talking heads of the Marvel Universe to let you know that scale is there. Like in the Dark Phoenix Saga, which is an X-Men story that doesn't cross over with other books, there's a moment where the Phoenix sort of becomes cosmically aware and powerful and dangerous. And you get to see Doctor Strange, Reed Richards, you can read it on his devices, Silver Surfer senses something. And it's just on that one page to let you know how big of a deal this is. So even though it's not a crossover with those characters, um, there's a moment where clearly what's happening is big enough that it's sort of inching into their world a little bit where they're reacting to it. And I think what made Spider-Man somebody that was really, really appealing was that there was something grounded and realistic about this character in the sense that he was flawed in ways that a lot of the typical superhero was the DC silver age. There's a lot of fun, crazy auto bender type stuff in it with, you know, Superman becoming the king of the ant people and stuff. But when you read a book like justice league, a lot of the superheroes would be fairly interchangeable that you could, aside from superpowers, you could probably swap dialogue between green arrow and wonder woman and Aquaman that unless they're talking in the first person and mentioning their powers, um, they would kind of react. I think Alan Moore referred to them as everyone's best aunties and uncles. <laughs> um, what Spider-Man did was that he was that teenager who wasn't the sidekick who really had no idea what the fuck he was doing and had to sort of get good at existing in a crazy world really fast. And he would screw up and make bad decisions a lot. I mean, it's written right into his origin that when he gets superpowers, he's not like, you know, I know I need to fight crime. I know I need to stop this thing. Um, he decides that he wants to make money. The first thing he does is throw on a mask and decide to be a pro wrestler for a season and then decides to be a TV star. So, well, it's not, it's not just that he decides to be a TV star. It's that he's a pro wrestler and then he like wrestles and the guy's like, okay, I'm going to cut you a check. Who should I make it out to? And he's like, oh, well, I can't tell you my real name. And I can't have you just make a check out to Spider-Man. <laughs> so I guess I'm not going to do this anymore. Like, I need to figure out how to get paid where, like, it's not going to affect my secret identity. Yeah. And yeah. so there's a there's a struggle there. Yeah, it's what I find is kind of great about it is that it's the element of being a superhero makes Peter's life harder and more complicated. And the it actually takes a lot of the tropes that you get from the traditional superhero comics. I really think Spider-Man is probably the second most important superhero that's ever been created. The first one, of course, being Superman, because those are the tropes that that Peter Parker's uh, Spider-Man stories are kind of they're inverting, they're subverting. So, again, he works at a newspaper, but it's not the Daily Planet. It's the Daily Bugle. <laughs> and he's got a boss that is not Perry White, uh, who makes his life really difficult. He's constantly struggling with money. Um, it shows that being a superhero can throw off your you know healthy work-life balance. That I mean, like, you look at Superman, and Superman's somebody who has probably the craziest life in the world. That he's an award-winning journalist who works for a major paper, who's writing articles and doing investigations regularly on top of being a superhero on a scale that's unimaginable. And the stresses of being being that superhero going, oh, my God, there's an asteroid or an evil robot or Lex Luthor is going on a rampage again. I got to do something. Um, and he somehow manages emotionally to handle all of that weight. And it's fine. Um, that he has occasional work stresses because he's in love with a woman who's in love with his other identity. 
And he has kind of a love triangle with himself for a lot of his history. But for the most part, Superman is remarkably emotionally healthy. I think that's the place where he is the most super because you take even a tenth of that. Spider-Man is not operating on a Superman type level. He has a tenth of the power, a tenth of the responsibility, and it drives him up a fucking wall, literally, where <laughs> he can't he can't balance all the days of his life being able to have a regular job. And also take off and fight a bank robbery and also uh, be able to keep a date and keep his um, his obligations to his aunt and all of this. So he's constantly running back uh, to people that he ran out on or disappointed, knowing that he did the right thing, but seeing that look of disappointment on their face. I, I think part of that is the, the distinction that you just sort of uh, described is really kind of a microcosm for the Marvel versus DC divide at a lot of this time, like in the, especially in the Silver Age. Because if you look at all of the DC heroes, or at least like kind of like the most popular ones, like you have Superman. What type of man is Superman? What type of man is Clark Kent? He is that, you know, truth, justice, all-American boy, you know, and professional journalist. You know, what would Batman be if he never put on the cape and cowl? He would still be the smartest man in the world, the richest man in the world, the best detective, you know, the one of the best athletes, one of the best fighters. He has all these accomplishments. If Green Lantern never picked up that power ring, he would still be a daredevil test pilot, you know, and cut from, like, the, the Chuck Yeager mold. You know, if Flash never got, or if Barry Allen never got zapped by lightning, he would still be a police forensic scientist. These are all professional people and good role models for the culture, you know, coming out of the post-war generation. But if you look at where youth culture was going, like, in the 60s, Stan and Steve Ditko and Jack Kirby, they tapped into this other sort of idea of, I, I really think the the building block of the Marvel heroes were they were all anti-heroes, and not in the Charles Bronson, Punisher, Deadpool, gonna kill all the guys type of anti-heroes, but more in kind of the, the textbook definition of that is these are people who have some sort of natural character flaw where you wouldn't think the best thing for them is to give them these superpowers. If you have this billionaire, billion-dollar suit of armor that can wage war on a country... Are you going to give it to the womanizing alcoholic Tony Stark? <laughs> no, that's probably not going to be your first choice, but that's what it is. If you're going to have like the gamma bomb go off and, and create this giant like rage monster with the power to break the earth, are you going to give it to the guy with daddy issues and the really insecure problems like Bruce Banner? Probably not. And if you can give the, you know, the proportionate power and, and abilities of a spider – Probably you're not you're not your first choice for Spider-Man isn't a 15-year-old nerdy socially awkward kid who you know comes from like this weird kind of broken home it's not a broken home in the conventional sense it becomes broken once his once his uncle dies as a result of him but still these are not your perfect sort of a like typical superheroes these are all anti-heroes that's what Marvel was creating that's why they found a strong audience in, in the youthful culture of the time. And I think that is why Spider-Man became the corporate mascot, because he is the best example of what this is, of you give these powers to somebody who is completely ill-equipped and ill-prepared to handle it, and it's a sink or swim. It's like, kid, what can you do, kid? You've, you've got to save, you've got to stop that train from going off the rails, and you don't have Superman's power or his natural leadership skills. You've got to make a decision. Are you going to, are you going to save these people or not? And that just it, it taps into somebody and it makes them a little bit more special. So I do agree with what Mike was saying that, you know, if if Superman was the mold that, you know, they created for this 
superhero and what that meant. Well, Spider-Man broke that mold. He changed things up. He became, you know, the the alternative and the best example of a different type of superhero. So that probably is the second best example of the second best superhero. And uh, he's constantly running up against these moral quandaries that would never stop Superman because Superman doesn't even think. Like there's a moment in Amazing Spider-Man number 5 where Peter Parker's bully, Flash Thompson, which sounds like a DC title, um, <laughs> has decided that it would be really fun to fuck with Peter by dressing up in a Spider-Man costume to scare him. And then Doctor Doom shows up and kidnaps Flash Thompson in the Spider-Man costume, thinking he's really Spider-Man. And there's this single panel where Peter just goes, you know, if I just do nothing... A lot of my problems are going to go away. And just for a panel, he's like, ah, no, I got to. I got to protect him. And Superman would never have that moment of, oh, Steve Lombard just got kidnapped by the parasite. I think I'm scot-free now. I mean, he would never do that. It would just be unthinkable. But it's that moment that we all would have, you know, realistically, that we were just like, yeah, um, I'm, I'm a prick for a quarter of a second before I do the right thing. Yeah, I I think that the the real the real comparison that you want to make isn't Spider-Man to Superman. It's Spider-Man to Batman. Yeah. And the, and yeah. the big difference there is that Batman has a mission. He's he also is, rich. Well, he, he's, <laughs> even if he wasn't rich, he's driven to be Batman. From the age of 8, he's like I am going to go out, I'm going to devote my life to fighting crime, that is the thing that I'm going to do. And the vast majority of DC's heroes, especially at this time, either have a mission in the Batman or Green Arrow sense, or there's somebody who is born to power and born to have this sense of obligation in the way that Superman does or Wonder Woman or Aquaman, where they're, you know, kings or magic or have powers of some kind. Spider-Man has thrust has power thrust upon him. And his immediate reaction isn't, okay, well, now I have a mission to fight crime. It's, how can I get out of this? Yeah. What can I do to get out from under this sense of obligation I have? And the thing that makes him a hero is, time and again, his answer is, nothing. I have to do this because I'm the one who's here who has the ability to do this. But he, he also makes that decision because he makes the selfish decision once. Yeah. yeah. And it has tragic consequences. And it's it's that tragedy and that pathos that I think devo- defines so many of Marvel characters when you're talking about like Ben Grimm, the thing who in his backstory, like he's a war hero. He's a sports star. He's a jet fighter uh, test pilot. Like in a just world, Ben Grimm would have been the first man on the moon in the NASA program. And instead, he is a lumpy orange pile of crap. <laughs> but. At the same time, he has the power to be a hero, and despite that pathos that he carries with him, he goes out time and again to do the right thing, and that's what makes him a hero. Yeah. Not because he has to, not because he was born with that ability, or because it's his mission to do good in the world, but because he has the power, he feels that obligation to go out and do good things. That it's a it's a choice. And it's a it's a really hard choice because it usually is sacrificing other things in your life to make that choice. That I am going to I finally got a date with Liz Allen and it's great. I'm super excited. But then, you know, the rhino attacks a bank and I'm like and he makes the choice to be Spider Man. 
stands her up and now she hates his guts and he can't, he's got no good answer. And that's the sort of thing, again, Batman frequently doesn't have to make that choice because he doesn't have to hold down a job. Yeah. He, I mean, Lucius Fox is literally, his job is to do Bruce Wayne's job. And he, he basically will just like, Hey, run my company. I'll sleep in late and beat up criminals at night. I got this. And, you know, Spider-Man, again, that money is the other, that other separating factor between the two of them. Spider-Man will have moments where, he runs out of web fluid and, and he only has enough for one of his arms. So he's like, I guess I got to do this for a while until I sell some photographs of Spider-Man. And, uh, like there's a, there's an issue, a series of issues where he fights Dr. Octopus and Dr. Octopus rips his mask off and Spider-Man has to go and break into a costume shop and steal a store-bought Spider-Man mask that's kind of similar to the one that Miles wears in Spider-Verse. And there's several issues where he's wearing a Spider-Man costume with this cheap plastic mask that he can't breathe through right. He's also dealing with the fact that his his aunt has disappeared on him after a fight with Gwen Stacy, and she turns up working as a housekeeper for Dr. Octopus, and now Peter has an ulcer, and... There's all of this stuff sort of happening. It's like Spider-Man has all this shit piled on him. And and Batman has a lot of that stress, too. But he's got a bigger, you know, sort of cushion to have that stuff do. Because he's like, oh, why why is Bruce Wayne covered in bruises? Oh, well, I'm taking a kickboxing course. Or why is he out of town for a while when he was fighting the Joker? Oh, he was on a ski trip in Switzerland. It's like, it's a lot easier for Batman to make excuses. Where Spider-Man just has to go, uh, yeah, I was mugged. And oh, I can't afford to pay rent this month. Part of the, the reason why the creators approached these characters differently and why they gave them a little bit more humanity and these sort of feet of clay was by necessity because at the time Marvel, which was timely, had just like this tiny little foothold. They had to borrow, they had to use DC's printing presses. Like oh. DC owned them. So when they were creating these comics, they, they kind of needed to say, you know what? We're not doing superhero comics because if DC thought they were in direct competition, they would have canceled the deal. And, and, Marvel would have been out of luck. So they kind of had to say, you know what, these are science fiction stories, or these are hmm. horror stories, or these are romance. So if you read early Fantastic Four, it's like a, a sci-fi alien monster type of story that like kind of fit into these genres. The Incredible Hulk, the first issue of The Incredible Hulk is a horror story, like or like a B-movie like type of thing, like all the horrors of nuclear war. And Spider-Man, what ended up becoming, for a lot of people, the driving force and what made the character so special was that his... Peter Parker's life was just as, if not more interesting than Spider-Man's because it was a soap opera and yeah, Stan yeah. And, and Steve Ditko were borrowing from the romance comics that they'd been writing throughout the 1950s. Yeah, so that was uh, my, that that was was my the, one yeah. thought and I, I, clearly someone else has thought of this before is how much were they plugged into Ar uh, to Archie as a thing? Because I feel like there are some parallels to it being like it's just a teen drama where Peter Parker gets sort of is trying his luck against like three different two or three different girls at any time. And he's got a buddy who's I, I guess Harry Osborn doesn't eat uh, hamburgers a lot, but like there's got to be some parallels. He does there. like drugs later on. Though. <laughs> Jack Kirby's early involvement with Spider-Man was relatively minimal, but he did invent the romance comics genre hmm. in the 1950s. That was Jack Kirby. Yeah, it's a lot of things it doesn't get sort of get credit for. But yeah, it's what's interesting is that that sort of merger of all of these different genres that are kept fairly separate. Then, if you were to pick up a, a comparable DC comic from the exact same era, um, the the life of like Barry Allen or Hal Jordan 
or Bruce Wayne is not nearly as important in the story as Peters is. That Peters sometimes dominates the issue, and there's only probably about eight pages of Spider-Man. I remember I was listening, I watched that uh, documentary series that Robert Kirkman did on AMC about the history of comics, and there's an episode on Marvel, and somebody was sa- said that they were working for DC at the time, and they said there was just this this editor who was just like, why is this popular? Looking at a Spider-Man comic, <laughs> he spends five pages talking to his aunt. I don't get it. Why do people like this? And I think that's really what it is. Is that you know, it's this guy who's just kind of struggling to get by. That the man part is just as important as the spider part. And the spider thing is just making his life. You'd think it would be this liberating moment. In some ways, it is because I think that being Spider-Man gets Peter out of his shell and makes him a lot less introverted. And you notice over the course of those first Ditko issues, he goes from just kind of like eating shit whenever Flash Thompson picks on him to like giving as good as he gets and constantly like throwing out zingers that go over Flash's head. And other kids started going, hey, I kind of like this Peter guy. And I mean, and again, it's that, that hard moral decision where, there's a moment where Flash and Peter are just kind of getting at it and a teacher, and again, this is the 1960s. This would not be cool in a school today decides the way they're going to settle. This is in the boxing ring after school. (laughs) And Peter doesn't do what, what uh, Clark Kent would do, which is clearly Clark Kent would throw the fight and go, Oh my God, I'm a wimp. I got to maintain my identity. Peter's like, I still want to win the fight, but I don't want to knock his head off. What is an easy medium? So I could believably kick his ass. Well, you know, there, there's a there's a saying in the Marvel universe, or when talking about the Marvel universe, if you're on the opposite side from Captain America, you're on the wrong side. Yeah, because Captain America is the ethical core of the Marvel universe, and I think in that same way, Spider-Man is the moral heart of the Marvel universe. Hmm. He is its heart and soul, and the fact that you know he. He was the character that they put in every new issue one, even if it had nothing to do with him, because it would sell more comic books. Oh, yeah. Um, Brute I, Force yeah, number one. Uh, Transformers number three, yeah, guest starring was, Spider-Man. That, that was yeah. Gonna be yeah, they threw him in every book. Yeah. He was the team up guy. Like he is the guest star that you want in your book because it's going to sell more. Over his life, Spider-Man has been everywhere He's teamed up with everybody. He has handled conflicts from the cosmic to the street level and below. <laughs> He's kind of been everywhere and done everything. But at the same time, he gets no respect. No. Like other superheroes constantly talk about how annoying he is and how he kind of smells bad because he can't afford to wash his costume all the time. <laughs> like he is the character that we root for because he's got the Parker luck. He's always on his back foot trying to figure out how he's going to solve this problem because he doesn't have the resources of a Batman. He doesn't have the powers of a Superman, but he still has to be there to punch at the same weight class as everybody else, no matter what. Yeah. And he doesn't give up. And we love an underdog. Yeah. Spider-Man is the perpetual underdog. And it's what's also crazy is that you look at Clark Kent, and if Clark Kent wasn't from Krypton, if he was just a farm boy raised by the Kents, he'd probably still be a crusading journalist for truth, justice, and the American way. That he'd still probably have the similar um, identity as Clark Kent that he has, maybe a lot less pretending to be a bit of a nerd, but he'd still kind of be there. If he really was that character, there's still something sort of noble about him. He'd have that same life. Spider-Man, if he'd never been bitten by the radioactive spider would be a completely different person. He'd probably still be more introverted because 
fighting criminals and quipping and, and doing the thing, because he's almost always overpowered. The quips are a way to throw people off their game, but it's also a way for him to sort of get it out of his system. Um, so he'd be, he'd be less, he'd be more repressed. He'd probably also have a science job where he's making a hell of a lot more money working for probably Reed Richards or Stark Industries or something, because he's a really smart guy who's working essentially a sub minimum wage job that is he's totally overqualified for because what job would take him where he can't just go, Oh yeah, I took off in the middle of my shift and I can't tell you why. (laughs) Or another alternative history, like forgetting if he wasn't bitten by the, by the spider. What if he was bitten by the spider, but it just happened five, 10 years later in his life. I mean, I think a lot of this is the fact that he was a kid. He wasn't, independent he wasn't living on his own and he didn't have all the life lessons you know like kind of laid out for him but if he was a professional if he did have a steady job if he was had that sort of nordra if he was in a steady relationship with a woman who kind of understood him and and could know the truth if his relationship with his aunt and uncle were a little bit differently if he was 25 when he got bitten by the spider how how much different would his life be would he still be hated and feared would he have taken you know the powers in a different direction or would he have gone more selfishly or, or something like that? I, I think eventually we're going to get to talking about his villains who are great. But I think a big issue is like the life lesson that Peter learns of with great power comes great responsibility is something that a lot of his villains didn't learn. And that's yeah. what makes them villains. And that is a big distinction between them. Yeah. Something to to throw on top of that is, you know, everybody talks about Uncle Ben. And how, you know, Spider-Man let a criminal go and that was his big lesson and that's how he became Spider-Man. And he's been Spider-Man ever since then. And I think that not enough weight is given to the death of Gwen Stacy as a motivating factor in Spider-Man's life. Because here he had somebody who he was in love with and could very easily have given up being Spider-Man to be with until one of his villains caught up with him. Even as like he's doing the right thing, he's being Spider-Man. The Green Goblin catches up with him, finds his identity, you know, takes Gwen Stacy, and she ends up dying in that conflict. And it's kind of gone back and forth, but it's never been entirely clear whether she was dead when the Green Goblin threw her off that bridge or if Spider-Man snapped her neck when he tried to catch her. Yeah. But either way, like that is such an integral part of who Peter Parker has become as a character, as he has grown in the role of Spider-Man. And I think it's every bit as important as Uncle Ben to his development. Yeah, he's somebody who has screwed up or had horrible things happen to him, and he has to constantly grapple with the weight. I mean, I think uh, our friend Greg Hatcher said in a past episode, when we were talking about the difference between characters like Spider-Man and characters like the Punisher, is the Punisher never has a moment's doubt about whether he's doing the right thing. He doesn't concern himself with it. Hey, that's a bad guy over there. He's still alive. I'm going to fix that. Um, (laughs) But you look at Spider-Man and Spider-Man thinks of every possible angle where something can go wrong. And a lot of his angst comes from the fact that he, in many ways, overcompensates for, I'm never going to let that happen again. And I'm going to stop that five steps ahead, even though it turns him into a psychological mess that... Not only does he worry about the lives of his loved ones, he worries about the lives of his enemies. Like, 
I don't want to hurt Kirk Connors, even though he's turned into a giant lizard. I want to try to do something in a way that saves his life because I worry about his family. And, you know, he will try to save J. Jonah Jameson or Flash Thompson's lives, even though they make his life harder. Um, he struggles with that stuff and almost to the point where, you know, his life is dominated by self-doubt and him having to overcome these horrible feelings and then having to live with the fact that even though he did the right thing at great cost, people still look at him like a loser. <laughs> it's, it's just, it's maddening. Um, that's what I kind of love about the character is that they never let him get off easy. I think somebody once said the math equation is that Spider-Man wins and Peter Parker loses. Well, isn't also the reason why he's significant is that in hero comics of the time, if he was as young as he is, he would be a sidekick. It would be Spider-Boy, not Spider-Man. And so you have the idea where, you know, if you're Robin, you've got Batman to look up to to say, where Batman's like, whoa, 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 you know, pump the brakes, Robin. You need to know this could happen if you don't make the right decision or something where he doesn't have that. So it's his it's his conscience that is the superhero that he's constantly trying to strive to be. Yeah, I mean, even when he tries to look to other superheroes, like in the first issue of his own comic, he tries to join the Fantastic yes. Four <laughs> and then gives up when he realizes they don't have a paycheck. <laughs> and they're like, no, we can still help you. He's like, no, 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 too late, too late, like a teenager and sort of disappears. Um the, the Avengers try to give him a test that he doesn't want to go through with because he doesn't want to hurt the Hulk. And it's just like all of this stuff. So he's always this like weirdo off on his own that um, – and even like you mentioned before, Tobias, a lot of superheroes find him annoying. I remember there was a, a whole thing where he does join the Avengers and Hawkeye is also in the team. The The comic Hawkeye is a lot – this is the weird thing is that comic Hawkeye is not like movie Hawkeye, the same way that Star-Lord in the comic is not like Star-Lord in the, in the movies. Actually, if you trade their personalities, that's who they are in the comics. That, yeah. that Hawkeye is Star-Lord and Star-Lord is Hawkeye. Um, <laughs> and they're both on the Avengers and they're both trying to be the funny guy. <laughs> and it's driving everyone else crazy because they can't handle that the other guy's making jokes. So they're upping the ante and then Luke Cage is like, just shut up, both of you. Um, There's a, a, a moment in the um, Avengers disassembled story arc where the Scarlet Witch has pretty much had a mental breakdown, losing control of her powers, and she's doing all of these horrible things to just completely fuck up the Avengers and all of their lives. And, like, they've gathered, like, every Marvel hero, everybody who's ever been associated with the Avengers, and Spider-Man shows up there, and he's just kind of clinging in, in, like, the background, and they're kind of, like, talking, like, wait, could our could our beloved Wanda, could she really be capable of doing this? Could she really, be, like, lose her mind and, and kill all these people that we love and these former Avengers? And Spider-Man just, like, it's like this moment of pure quiet, and Spider-Man's just like, well, you know, she did marry a robot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. And everybody just kind of looks at him, he's like... If I married a robot, you'd think I was crazy. <laughs> it's kind of like, just like this thing is like, dude, that is completely the wrong thing to say, but it's such a Spider-Man thing. Of course, like he's he's going to make that type of joke, but it's like, yeah, that's why these people don't like you. Yeah, <laughs> which is actually part of what was so great about the Superior Spider-Man story arc from a few years ago yeah. where Dr. Octopus takes over Peter Parker's brain. And so he's pretending to be Spider-Man, and, but he's acting like an imperious prick. The way that Dr. Octopus would. 
And like nobody in the Avengers is phased by this. They're like, oh, okay. Like he's the guy who reads Ayn Rand and becomes a huge <laughs> asshole one day. Because <laughs> of course, like he never reveals his identity to everybody or to anybody. Nobody knows who he really is. And so there's this level of distrust there, even as he's part of the team. Yeah. And what I kind of love with, with Dr. Octopus taking over his life is that Dr. Octopus suddenly has access to all of speed, uh, Peter's memories and things like that. And he's sort of punched in the face with all of the things that happened to him and his upbringing that Dr. Otto Octavius never had. And he decides, no, not only am I going to be Spider-Man now, this isn't the culmination of a supervillain plan. I'm going to be a better superhero than Peter Parker ever was. And he starts basically operating as if he's a supervillain with like a lair and henchman. Well, not just that, but he's like, not only am I going to be the superior Spider-Man, I'm going to be the superior Peter Parker. Yes. Yeah. I'm going to do more with Peter Parker's life than he ever did. I'm going to go back to grad school. I'm going to get my degree. Like, I'm going to start this company. And I'm going to make Peter Parker a success. Yeah. And he does. He does. <laughs> and and even though he's like, it's what's great about that storyline. And it's one of my favorites is that he kind of decides to become the person that Peter ever did. And he starts doing things like, you know, I don't have to go out on patrol and do this. And I think Otto even says it to himself. It's like, Peter just hated himself. Like he does like th this drudgery work and this doubt and all this crap that he threw on himself is to make himself have that responsibility. Like I, I don't have to go out on patrol all the time. I can send out drones. They'll tell me if there's a crime so I can still take my aunt to the hospital or take Mary Jane to dinner. And they'll let me know if there's a problem. Or I think in a lot of cases, like they'll automatically like he'll be like, oh, just call the police yeah. or <laughs> call the Avengers hotline and let them deal with this because this does not have to be my problem. I yeah. have other things to do. The thing with Peter is that he takes everything and he says, oh, everything is my responsibility. And he sets this unrealistic standard for what a good person would do that he knows he can't live up to and he fails and then he just beats himself up over that. I think Otto actually says during that story that Peter just hates himself. And from that outsider point of view, it's easy to think that he, he does. And um, it's actually one of my favorites. But yeah, the idea of someone else trying to do this job and doing it in a way other than how Peter Parker does that sort of DIY, I'm going to do this stuff. I don't have any money. And he's just like, why the hell would you do that? You're like two, you're like two credits away from your degree, dude. <laughs> what are you doing? And uh, he's like, why, you know, why would Peter ever break up with this supermodel? It's like, what is your problem? <laughs> he just like gets, he sort of gets angry at this guy. He just, your life is way better. And I guess we're saying that sort of connection with, with the bad guy stuff is that I think Otto is kind of who Peter could have been. Like you mentioned, Ryan, with, you know, what if he only trouble came into powers in sort of middle age? And what if he didn't have that upbringing that taught him about power and responsibility? What if he was already an established scientist and also got a horrible brain injury? So, I mean, who knows? And I guess with that, um, I really want to get into another question, which is that I think that Spider-Man, more than any other superhero aside from maybe Batman, has the greatest rogues gallery of villains. Clearly. That I think they're in that same range because everyone knows Batman villains. I think Spider-Man villains are fucking great. And I want to have open this question to you first, Ryan, but then to everybody. Who are your favorite Spider-Man supervillains? Um, I mean, Doc Ock is the number one. Oh, yeah. And that's that's not a challenging comment. That's kind of like who's Batman's villain and most people. I, well, 
mainstream people would say the Joker. A lot of people might just like kind of bristle at that because he's so overexposed, so they might not say the Joker. But I think Doc Ock is just because of everything. He he is a little bit of a cracked mirror because he has all of those those attributes of Peter. If they were just if they had gone badly, um, also just something about like the look with like the the tentacles and these four like kind of like a ro- mechanical arms. Uh, and the synergy between a four or, or an eight-legged spider, eight-legged octopus. There's just something about, but yeah, there's just something about Doc Ock, um, and he does have the personal connection. I also, for other reasons, I've always liked Sandman. Um, I like villains and like characters who kind of like have like that morphing ability to kind of like change their bodies into different shapes. Um, Sandman again being just a really just a, a, a kind of petty thug. But if he had had an Uncle Ben type of character in his life, maybe when he got those powers, he wouldn't have resorted directly to crime. Um, I've always liked Craven, but maybe that's... My love for Craven might have more to do with the one really important story, Craven's Last Hunt. And if you took that out of the character's history, I don't know if he would be as memorable or, or as beloved as, as he is now. Um, I've, always, I've always really, really loved the lizard. Um, just like the, something about the look of this reptile creature with a lab coat <laughs> just <laughs> kind of like I, I think just that visual is awesome i like the personal connection um that he he is a sort of jekyll and hyde type of character where he he submitted himself to experiments to try and improve himself to try and cure this problem that he was like dr kurt connor's lost an arm and he was trying to do like the cellular regeneration to to grow his arm back and it just it turned him into a monster that threatened his children his his son and his wife that's just that's a great story there and his connection to peter um yeah i, I mean there's most most of my favorite spidey villains that it boils down to the originals that were created by by stan and steve ditko um i i just there's always something about those classic ones I've never been a big fan of Venom, but there is one particular interpretation of Venom that I really, really love that we can talk to later because it's it's in one of the multimedia ones, not the comics, oh. and it, it's not the movie. Oh, I was going to say, is it is it Topher Grace? <laughs> it, it is not. It is, not. It's one from, it is one of from one of the animated series, one of the cartoons. Mm. But, um, but yeah, probably, like I mean, the big ones: Doc Ock, the Lizard, Sandman, Craven. Um, yeah, those are probably my top four. Those that would be my my tops. Yeah, uh, I I concur with Doctor Octopus. He he is clearly taken the Green Goblin's place as Spider Man's arch nemesis. Um, I especially love the interpretation that they gave in the PS4 Marvel Spider Man game that came oh, out that in 2018. So <laughs> oh, it's so good! If you'd said something before I came up, I would have brought it for you. Oh, I have a I have an Xbox. Oh, no worries. It's it's <laughs> out of my reach. <laughs> but the 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 way that they build up his character as like a scientist who's struggling as hard as he can to do good, but finds himself continually fenced in by, of all things, finances. It's a very Peter Parker interpretation of the character, and he's got a brain tumor, and he's like slowly, slowly descending into madness. And Peter can see it happening, but is powerless to stop it, because at the same time this is going on, he's having to deal with Mr. Negative and this whole Spider-Man thing that's going on. And like... Octavius becomes Dr. Octopus almost behind Peter's back. And it's just, it's such a great story beat where this version of Otto is almost like a father to him. Um, and the way that his, that Peter and Otto interact, I think makes him Peter's greatest villain. Um, but I'm actually gonna, I'm gonna, uh, contradict Ryan and I'm going to say Venom. Oh, wow. 
And the reason Gloves I say off. that, um, Venom. I, I have always <laughs> loved that villain where when they show up on the scene, it is immediately no holds barred, gloves are off, go as hard as you can, as fast as you can, because if you give him an inch, you're not going to make it out of this. And one of my earliest memories of of reading about Venom, because um, I was dipping in and out of Spider-Man throughout my childhood, the comic books, um, I want to say it's like 396 of Amazing Spider-Man. Uh, it's after Venom has been off the table for a while, and he escapes, and he comes back, and he shows up, and it's like the Macy's Day Parade. And he doesn't set off Peter's spider sense. So Peter has no idea that he's coming and he sees him. And my memory, which you know could be wrong at this point, is that he basically hits Venom as hard as he can and then runs. Yeah. <laughs> because the stakes are immediately that high. And I there's there's a part of me that just loves that villain where it's not let me talk to him. Let me figure out what he wants. Let me figure out like a way around this. It's. Go time, one hundred percent. I remember there's a story. I think it's an Eric Larson drawn story where Venom and Spider Man are stuck on an island together, like a deserted island, and it's so clear that he can't beat Venom that he just takes a skeleton he finds and tears up a, a spy, his Spider Man costume and attaches that to go. I just want him to think he killed me and he's stuck on this island and he gets off on a boat and just disappears and just leave him there. Let him think he killed me because I just I can't beat him. Uh, that I love that as an idea, and it's just a, again everything that Peter does, it just kind of kicks it down the road, and you know it's going to come back on him hard, as it always does. You know, Venom's not going to have a happy ever after on that island. He's going to get off somehow. Same way that Green Goblin gets amnesia, and he's like, okay, he doesn't remember I'm Spider Man. He doesn't remember he's Green Goblin. <laughs> you know, <it's, laughs> and you know, and he's the whole time Peter's just like, oh my god, he gave me a dirty look. Is it mean? And, um, I guess I, um, yeah, I, I love that about those kinds of characters that just say, oh my God, everything is scary now. I only have one and it's the master planner. Oh yeah. yeah. Also known as <laughs> Doc Ock, of course. Yeah. I, I, for all the reasons that you said, like he just, he just is the most iconic looking of all of them, even though I think they, I think, uh, like you were saying, Ryan is sort of overplayed that Joker is Batman's uh, two nemesis. I guess you always associate Green Goblin first with him, but a Doctor Octopus is a great foil. is is the is the great obverse to Spider Man, and he has that great kind of purple prose dialogue. And yeah. he sometimes spits it out when he is Peter. Um, that is kind of great. There's moments of like curses and stuff like that. There's that kind of an element to his character. There's an insecurity to his character. Uh, there's something about just a classic trope of a mad scientist who steals shit. I, I can't remember where I saw it, but there was some comment I saw on like Twitter a while ago where they were saying announcing fools in a booming voice is a great inclusive and general gender neutral way to introduce a room. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> fools! Also up there with Behold. Yes. Behold is one of my favorites. Oh, Behold um, is great. I really love the Shocker. Oh, yeah. Um He's my favorite D-lister. Um, I love the way that he sort of evolved over the years. And you, know, then- you know the origin of the Shocker, the name. So he actually has a V on his belt. Because his original villain name was going to be the Vibrator. Oh. <laughs> because his villain powers, he creates vibrations. Until a Marvel writer 
pointed out to whomever it was who was creating this character, like, you can't call him that. <laughs> and the fact that they picked the shocker instead yeah. is well, wonderful. There's clearly nothing sexual or inappropriate. No, obviously. <laughs> nothing, nobody could ever misinterpret that. What, what I love about the shocker is that he's not an electric themed superhero, but he has a name that leads you to believe that he is. <laughs> and he's, you're like, Oh, he's not even, he's not even electric themed superhero. He wouldn't even be Spider-Man's best electric themed superhero. <laughs> he's sort of seen as like, Oh, you're like that other guy. And he's like, I'm not even that other guy. <laughs> um, he's got this brown and yellow quilted costume that protect him from these vibration gauntlets that are the greatest thing he will ever do. And what I love about him is he's so unimaginative and so unambitious that he's not trying to take over the world. He's not trying to hold the city hostage. He just wants to use them to punch a hole in a bank vault, or he just will hire himself out to like the Kingpin or Hammerhead or somebody. He's just like, you know, he's just getting by and he's kind of a sad sack. And the way that they've interpreted him in things like, superior foes of Spider-Man where he lucks into finding this long lost cyborg mob boss's head who's been living with this family and he takes him back to his apartment and it's a total shithole and the bad guy's like well, what are we going to get out of this dump and he's like what are you talking about I live here he's like what you live here I thought you just found this place and, and Shocker looks so hurt and he just goes it's rent control <laughs> hey 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 never underestimate how important rent control is in New York City yeah, oh god yeah yeah, I I love it. He's just kind of a, a wonderful Mordish uh, villain. But well, and, th- and that's one of the great things about so many of Spider-Man's villains is uh, there's there's a comment at one point in a Captain America comment where Batrock the Leaper is talking and he's like, my job is not to beat Captain America. The thing that you hire me to do is slow Captain America down just long enough so that you can get away with whatever it is that you're trying to do. And I am incredibly good at that specific job. And the thing that is great about so many of these Spider-Man villains is that they're at that same level of, I can't beat Spider-Man. Like, I'm just a crook. Like, hire me to do a job, and I'll show up and I'll blow a a hole in this bank vault, and I'll steal this money, and, like, if Spider-Man shows up, like, I'll try and fight him. But that's like all you're getting out of me. Like, yeah. you know, he's, he's got villains like the Rhino. Yeah. He's just a big guy. Yeah, he's a big, dumb guy who crashes through things. And what I kind of love, though, is that he's so much more physically powerful than Spider-Man. But again, Spider-Man beats him by being smart because Rhino is not. Wait, if I'm remembering correctly, in the uh, the Spider-Man Election Day single issue special, isn't the shocker browbeating someone about voting at the very beginning of this issue i, I don't remember it's like it's the shocker and someone else and they're having this conversation that absolutely plays like it's the film that you that you make for high schoolers about why it's important to vote it's like men and women are putting their lives on the line so you could vote you the least you could go out and do is vote even if even if it's a you know even if you can't uh, do things with your secret identity that you want to. And it's like the shocker who's being like the moralizing guy. It's such a bizarre, weird cameo. I, I think I remember that's the same issue where the chameleon steals Barack Obama's identity and thinks that if he takes Obama's place and gets inaugurated, that he's president. It's like, you know, as soon as you reveal yourself, they're just going to arrest you, right? You didn't actually win that election. It's not like, ha ha, I got the key. You know, it's like, no, it doesn't work that way. Shouldn't it, I though? think it depends on I think it depends on who's in Congress whether or not he gets away with it or not. So, do, have any of you guys seen the sh- the cartoon The Spectacular Spider-Man that aired I think around 2011? I haven't. 
It ran for about two seasons. It was very, very good. Did that one have Doogie Howser? Like... That one have Doogie Howser as the voice? No, no. Oh. I think that was the MTV Spider-Man series. No. Yeah, it was like in the That's maybe correct. late '90s, early early 2000s. Um, no, spectacular Spider-Man. Uh, I I think it was around 2011. It, it was two seasons. Very good. It felt like they took a lot of the old classic stories from like the first 30 issues of Spider-Man and just kind of refreshed them a little bit. And you really see that the DNA of these amazing stories is right there from the 60s comics by, by Stan and Steve and, and later John Romita. Um, but it's they, they bring it up, they refresh it. They do kind of play into a lot of cartoons and shows we're doing the, the Harry Potter trifecta thing where you've got your main character who is a super... And then he's got two friends, one girl and one bo- kind of nerdy boy. Uh, so they do that with uh, Peter and his friends Gwen Stacy and Harry Osborn and all those things. But the reason I'm bringing this up is because within that story, towards the end of the first season, they have like a, this long protracted arc where they do introduce the black symbiote suit and then it become, it turns into Venom. And they do a long time of building up why Eddie Brock hates Peter, <laughs> even though their parents were best friends. And But all of these things that Peter does in his life, the things that we've talked about, where he's, he's choosing to be Spider-Man to save people's lives and be the greater good. At the same time, he's making himself, as Peter, look like an asshole and breaking the hearts of the people who love him and depend on, depend on him, like Eddie Brock. And Eddie like loses this job because this you know all these things are going on. And he he's growing to hate Peter, and when Peter ditches the symbiote suit because he realizes it's he can't control it, and they played up like a sort of drug metaphor, like a performance enhancing drug, and then when it bonds with Eddie, they have this shared hatred of of Peter, but they, so they they play this up, but there's also like this whole tangled where you see, it, and and I sure I think the comics have done this too, but I really like the way the the efficiency of the way the cartoon did it in just a short amount of time of making it feel like the Venom suit was like a jilted lover that hmm. it hates Peter and it hates Spider-Man and it's using Eddie to get revenge on him but if Peter said hey let my friends go let my friends live and I'll join with you again you can have my body again and I'll become Venom again if that was ever the case the the suit would ditch eddie in a heartbeat oh, and then yeah. eddie feels that resentment for it and it creates this whole little this dynamic and again i don't think it's completely unique to this cartoon i think the the seeds were planted in the comics but i just i really like the way it developed across this cartoon so that is like that is the one time where i'm really like yeah this is the way to do venom and to do it well um, and then in the second season, it kind of picks it up where he's almost kind of like a stalker. Like he's he is lingering in the background, but because because Peter doesn't have like the, had the connection with the suit, he doesn't it it doesn't pick up on ping on his spider his spider sense the radar. So he is kind of like this this more sinister, more deadly threat, kind of as as Tobias was mentioning from that comic. Um, so yeah, it's under specific circumstances. I really really like the Ven- the way Venom is used, but. I've seen and read a lot of Venom stories that I was kind of like, meh, so he he never he never made my like top five villains list. But yeah, oh, well, when he's you, done right, when he's done right, and I highly recommend that that cartoon. You uh, gave you me oh, thanks, Ryan. You gave me a suggestion of things to read, which was good because, uh, like. Spider-Man has so many fucking stories. It's unbelievable mm-hmm. how big it is. And you wanted me to, to read, I think it was the end of the 80s, Todd McFarlane's sort of run around where sort of Venom comes in. And I got the sense that in the same way that I kind of feel like 
early image and spawn and the things that came after Todd McFarlane kind of had their Genesis here, sort of like a Frank Miller, like, Oh my God, it's going to be, this is going to be intense. Like it's, this isn't for kids anymore. Sort of thing. I sort of felt a little bit of that with, um, it wasn't him writing it though. It was just, it was Todd McFarlane's I drawing. Think it was, uh, David Michelini, I think was writing Spider-Man yeah. at the time. But I mean, the way that McFarlane draws him, like, like, uh, Venom tries to intimidate Mary Jane Watson and she looks like she's been assaulted. She has been assaulted in some way, like ex- extremely buxom, um, Mary Jane Watson with tears in her eyes, like a trauma survivor. I can't, I've got felt like a sense like this was really going off the rails in a, in a bit, but at the end of the arc, don't, doesn't, uh, he abandon the black suit and get back to his, his uh, original, you know, blue yeah, and red so suit as a way to sort of just purge after, that. after Peter has gotten rid of the venom symbiote, he wears a cloth, uh, costume pa- after the same pattern and then after Venom shows up for the first time and assaults Mary Jane, she's like, I can't have you wearing that suit anymore. And that's when he goes back to the red and blue costume that he hadn't worn in about, I want to say, like six years. But isn't that the the thing is that it was a relief to the fandom who were like, well, a black Spider-Man that has this like, n- like not night- in the way that Twitter would get angry. No, no, about no. That. Like <laughs> he's wearing a, a night, a night shaded costume, you yeah. know, is does is not really sort of Spider-Man's thing. Well, it's a, it's a very stark look to the costume. Um, the black and white Spider-Man costume, I think I first saw it because it also got a Secret Wars action figure. It so looks different because it only has two colors on it and most of it is straight black and it has this – if you've seen Venom or Venom t-shirts and I guarantee you you have, it's got this big white spider with the legs that go all the way around the torso and attach to another spider on the back. And aside from these web shooter uh, white squares on the back of his hands, all black except for the eyes. And it's really stark but it doesn't – it's a cool looking design, but I don't know how well it matches Spider-Man because he's such a bright kind of quippy character that he doesn't seem like the he's not Batman or he doesn't hide in the shadows or do that stuff very often. I, I think that it was a great look for the 1980s. Yeah. And I, I think that it really fits into the New York of the 1980s, which was kind of the height of urban decay mm-hmm. when you know the subways are covered in graffiti and the skies are red from all of the smog that's reflecting the street lights. And there's, you know, pimps, drug pushers, and gang violence it's everywhere. It's Travis Bickle, New York. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. You know, this is the same New York of Frank Miller's Daredevil. Yeah, I don't want to live there. It was, a very, it was <laughs> a very dark time. And I think that that Spider-Man costume fits that time. Mm-hmm. And by the late 80s, the early 90s, when, you know, you're you're starting to get, to get into the period of refreshment, especially, like, after Giuliani came in and cleaned up Times Square like it was a different era and it was time to have the red and blue Spider-Man back yeah there's always going to be a return to the thing that's classic in exactly that and and I do want to kind of tag this on to the end of, of Venom is that I think the thing that really redeems Venom as a character in my eyes is Rick Remender's run on Venom where Flash Thompson has the Venom symbiote mm. and this is after Thompson has gone to war as a soldier and come back missing both legs below the knee. And so he's, you know, he's an alcoholic and he's gotten sober. He's a veteran. He's crippled. And he gets this Venom suit that allows him to be his hero, Spider-Man. And he and the symbiote kind of find each other and become uplifted by each other. And the symbiote, much like, you know, that jilted lover metaphor 
kind of gets over Spider-Man. And he's like, I found somebody who I'm compatible with, who gives me everything that Peter Parker gave me, but actually wants to be with me. Yeah. And that we can work together in this way that Peter and I never could. Well, that Flash has the thing that Peter never had with a symbiote, which is informed consent. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and, and towards the end of that run, I believe that they, they actually meet up with each other. And if I recall correctly, the the symbiote goes to Peter for a moment and they kind of do a thing and beat a villain. And then it's like, I'm I'm going back to Flash. Like mm-hmm. you you dissed me like you pushed me away and I'm over you now. Like I've I've got somebody who's good to me mm-hmm. and like we can kind of be OK with each other now. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't have to be this giant tongue wagging monster that it can sort of exist in a way that isn't just like I'm angry at everything all the time. So let's let's take a quick break um, and we'll be back in just a short moment with more Spider-Man. Afternoon, everybody. Ryan! How's that baby treating you, Mr. Daly? Like Thanos, snapping his fingers at my bank account. In that case, how about a beer on the house? Sure. Gotta give my mouth something to do between podcasts. Say, Ryan, I don't get how you have so much time for podcasting. Doesn't your wife want you spending time with the baby? Would you? Truth is, I think she's a little worried about how much time I'm spending with the kid, ever since his first words were Dagobah system. (laughs) Now she wants me to go out and do something mature, something productive, and most of all, something lucrative that can support the family. So you're going to... Podcast about Cheers, yeah. (laughs) That kid's not going to start college for 18 years. I got time. Cheerscast, the podcast where everybody knows your name. Coming soon to the Fire and Water Network. And uh, we are back on Radio vs. the Martians this month. We are talking about the one, the only, the incredible, amazing, sensational <laughs> web of Spider-Man. <laughs> so um, now that we're back, um, there's something that's always in the background of every Spider-Man story. It's a constant, it's a location, it's a plot element, it's a, it's a, it's a verb almost, and that is the Daily Bugle newspaper. The, the Daily Bugle is, like I mentioned before, not the Daily Planet. The Daily Planet is almost the idealized newspaper, the one that can survive, you know, the, the fact that newspapers are really hard to keep open. It, it's probably won countless Pulitzer Awards. It has unassailable journalistic integrity, and it's got reporters like Lois Lane and Clark Kent who are racking up the awards, and you can you can trust anything that's in that newspaper. That newspaper is not the Daily Bugle. The The <laughs> Daily Bugle is sort of this large, tabloidy, gaudy uh, one-sheet that has editorial headlines about how Spider-Man's a criminal and in cahoots with Electro, and uh, it's seems to be kind of based on a mixture of the New York Daily News and the New York Post, which I would recommend you Google some covers of those right away and go, yeah, that's the Daily Bugle. (laughs) (laughs) 
So I, I got to ask you guys, because it's the Daily Bugle, it does pop up in the hands of other characters um, frequently when Spider-Man runs into somebody in Marvel team up for the first time. They think he's a creep because of the Daily Bugle. So what is the in-universe reputation of the Daily Bugle? And how reputable a news source do you think it actually is? I don't, I mean, it's not necessarily the political propaganda equivalent, but I think reputation wise, I, I think that I've always thought of like the Daily Bugle as sort of Fox News as being a sensationalistic, very one sided, attempting to dumb down its audience <laughs> in a lot of ways. Um, again, not necessarily having the same political slants, although with J. Jonah Jameson as the publisher, perhaps. Um, but I, I kind of feel like it's, it's not, it's not, it's not the tabloids. It's not the National Enquirer or something. It's a, it's a paper of record of reputation, but it's definitely got like, you, you, you mentioned that you've been reading the Daily Bugle and in mixed company, some people kind of like, you know, twist <laughs> their eyebrows cock up or whatever. They kind of, they kind of hold their nose at, at that thought. I, I, I hate to contradict you again, Ryan, but I actually would most directly relate it to the Daily Enquirer. Given that the Inquirer has done quite a bit of like in-depth journalism, like investigative reporting, which is something that the Bugle does, especially when you get into like Ben uh, Urich and the whole Daredevil end of things, Mm -hmm. like they do do that investigative reporting at the same time that their editorials are hugely one-sidedly, you know, slanted. And the Inquirer did expose that uh, presidential candidate John Edwards was in cahoots with Dr. Octopus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Wouldn't the wouldn't the the corollary be more like the Washington Times? Oh, where, where there yeah. is a legitimate newspaper underneath there, but it also, yes, for its editorial stances, most decidedly in one direction and usually for people who are crooks. Now, I think there's an early Amazing Spider-Man where there's this new candidate. This must be the the era of the era of Nixon, I'm guessing, because it's like candidate Raleigh and he's like he's like a magnetic presence in the debates. And J. Jonah Jameson wants to throw the full weight of the Daily Bugle behind him. And of course, he's manipulating everyone. He's like when the camera switches off, he's like, no, they're fools. They'll vote for me. I'll run this. You know, I'll run this town and then I'll run the world. That sort of thing. And it's J. Jonah Jameson who's at, who's on camera putting his arm around him being like, oh, the, the I'm going to make sure the Daily Bugle elects you governor or whatever it is. So it's clear like it's there's like it, there's it's run by the guy who wants to use it to further his own sort of personal and political uh demands and i think everybody knows that because he says it out loud yeah that's the thing is that there's also characters like uh joseph robbie robertson and ben urich that work for the bugle who are serious journalists and i mean it's like everyone just kind of goes this is a serious newspaper but just throw out the front page <laughs> <laughs> it's like all the stuff where my boss uses it as a as basically a blog to scream about his his uh, grudge with Spider-Man. Which is funny because in more recent issues, because Jonah left the paper, he was mayor of New York for a while, and now he literally is a blogger. Like yes, just he is. running an anti-Spider-Man <laughs> blog. It's called Threats and Menaces. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just, oh. I always thought that Vince, uh, he was more like Vince McMahon, really. Yeah. He's just you're the kind of boss who's just the biggest asshole, and that's, that's his job. And you could probably punch him and still, you know, have a well, job. And, and step, kind of stepping outside of continuity for a second, um, I think I think the thing that the Daily Bugle does, uh, we were talking about 
cheers before we started recording uh, and the importance of a set and having like different entrances and exits and having it be a place that people can kind of show up. And I think that that's the thing that the Daily Bugle does for Spider-Man. It's a place that Spider-Man can go. It's a place that Peter Parker can go. There's investigative journalism happening. You know, there's J. Jonah Jameson rants where he's cooked up some new scheme or he's supporting some new villain. And there's it's just it's a great location set for stuff to happen that advances Spider-Man stories. And it's also a great place to remind you that Peter Parker doesn't have money. Right. <laughs> because he's either asking for an advance. That was one of my favorite moments in Spider-Man 2, where he's sent to some charity gala to, to take pictures. And he's like, well, Mr. Jameson, can I have an advance? And he just starts laughing. Yeah. Um, it reminds me of all the places where, you know, and then he goes out to get his money. And Betty Brant's like, oh, Peter, see, we gave you that advance. This just isn't enough to cover that. And it's just like those little reminders that he has these people. And I think the thing that stops it from straight up just being Fox News or maybe Robbie Robertson is essentially the Shepard Smith of the Daily Bugle. I don't know. Uh, but there's a sense of like, OK, that's the crazy boss who's in charge. This is a good boss who actually gives a shit about you, that Robbie is somebody who you want to have as your boss, that he has integrity, that he doesn't want the newspaper to have be under the cloud of anything. And he's been forced to fire Peter more than once, and Peter's caught up in a scandal. Well, Robbie Robertson really is the uh, Lucius Fox to J. Jonah Jameson's Bruce Wayne. Yeah, he's the one basically keeping the face afloat, while this guy is doing all sorts of crazy rich guy things and having a feud with, essentially, the naked cowboy of New York. <laughs> it's like, who's this weird oddity? It's like, it's like, the the legally actionable shit that Jameson does on a regular basis and prints in his newspaper, and you get the impression that Robbie is probably talked him down for a much more extreme version of that same headline um, where it's just like, yeah, string up Spider-Man. It's just like, whoa, let's, let's talk it down. And then Robbie's the one guy who's not afraid of Jonah, who Jonah will actually listen to sometimes. Um, but yeah, Ben Yurick again is somebody who in a better life could be working for the daily planet and probably afford better clothes and have a better life in a better apartment. And he probably wouldn't have gotten stabbed by Electra. Yes. <laughs> it's, probably, it's not the first time he's gotten assaulted by supervillains. Because it seems and like... I think the, the, daily, the, daily, sorry, the Daily Bugle is also a great romantic... Like the, the people that we've been talking about, Spider-Man has a great cast of supporting characters. These are people that you know, that you identify with, and that you love. And, and we talked about, you know, who are Spider-Man's best villains. We didn't have... If you rephrase the question slightly and you said, who is Spider-Man's best antagonist? Mm. Everybody says Jameson. Yeah. Like it's like he's you wouldn't put him necessarily on the villain or like the rogues gallery, but in terms of just causing Peter the most amount of stress and that bleeding ulcer and all of those things, it's the fact that he's got to he's got to lie to this guy. He's got to hand over evidence of him being a hero knowing that this guy who's giving him the a, a pittance of an allowance is going to use that evidence and twist it with his words to make it look like he's a criminal. Yeah, and it's, and who else is going to buy that many pictures of Spider-Man? <laughs> it's like he can't really go anywhere else with it because this stuff would not be front page news anywhere else. And that pittance is probably more than the Times is going to ever pay him for Spider-Man pictures. Yeah, and you have to keep in mind that you know, he's got an automatic camera webbed up somewhere. These are probably not good photographs. No. It's not like Peter Parker could go out and sell a coffee table book 
of these great photographs that he's taken as a photojournalist. Like these are bad tabloid shots. He did though. He did get. He did have. He did write a book in the eighties. Remember uh, during the first Venom story, I he do went on not tour. Remember that it was called that, Webs. It was made without his permission because he doesn't own the photographs. Oh no! <laughs> and he, he he was against it until he found out that he could make money. You know, signing the book and a thousand dollars a piece of Spider Man made an appearance, and he's like, okay. but i think it's it's sort of semi-canon it's repeated a lot that he's not a great photographer that it's more talent than skill and 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 the whole story that he has i think early on he just straight up tells jameson you're not allowed to ask how i get these oh yeah it's in like the very first issue when jameson is still running now magazine yeah and he goes on tv and he's like spider-man is a threat unlike a real hero my son john jameson jr (laughs) and he's talking up his son and talking crap about spider-man like in the same breath and putting his full journalistic might behind this yeah and self-aggrandizing his own family which is another thing he does i think there's a whole storyline where the cops are putting these cameras up around new york and uh, jameson of course is a privacy advocate and suddenly the people that are protesting him the the young long-haired kids that are protesting outside including robbie's son um he goes out and joins the protesters and, of course, makes sure he's photographed front and center. It's like, yeah, Jameson is leading the protesters against privacy violations. He makes it always about himself. And it's it's those little ways. It's like, I'm photographed with the next governor. I'm the person. And I think a big part of the reason he hates Spider-Man is one of the th- first things Spider-Man does is rescue his hero's son. Yeah. And his hero's son is cool with it. It's Jameson that can't let it go. Um, that's, that's so great about it. So since we are talking media... I mean, the the media. Let's talk about the way that Spider-Man has been interpreted into media. Um, how well do you think that in all the times he's gotten like seven movies, one of them animated, countless animated series. Um, there's so many places. This character's always been adapted into different media. Um, how well do you think Spider-Man's been adapted? Ryan? I think fairly well because they're fairly memorable. I mean – Quality notwithstanding, I, I think a lot like people remember like the the jingle, the the song from the you know the '60s cartoon and and Spider-Man and his amazing friends, and I mean I know there was that uh, live-action one with with just a guy in his pajamas climbing up the side of a wall, just walking it sideways, but. I mean, I think most of his media adaptations have been fairly well received. Uh, people might complain about some of the movies, but they've made a lot of money, and I don't think he's like really been a bomb in any of these adaptations, has he? I don't think so. I mean, even like the Amazing Spider-Man movies, which is the first live-action reboot he kind of got. They made two movies with Andrew Garfield. They're not bad, and they didn't bomb. But I think the understanding of what is a blockbuster these days is so ridiculous. It's like you didn't make a billion dollars, so you're a flop. I just it doesn't it's weird I think that um, there was a sense from a lot of people that we'll continue to buy tickets for this but this isn't necessarily the direction we want to go and even the first series I think both of the first two pre MCU Spider-Man series both had a a petering out moment rather than a conclusion where there was too much stuff crammed into a movie I think the second time in an attempt to sort of create spinoffs in a cinematic universe to compete with Marvel. And I think in the first instance, because you had, oh my God, superheroes are big money. We got to cram everything into Spider-Man 3. And I think you end up kind of turning people off and then you get this creative breakdown that sort of happens. Well, I mean, I didn't, I've never, I did not watch Spider-Man 3 for this, uh, for this panel. And I don't think I ever will. I just know that by reputation, it's, it's dreadful, but I was forced to watch 
forced, I say, to watch Batman and Robin. And I kind of felt like, wasn't it this... Isn't, aren't they comparable, wouldn't that, you say? That is the exact comparison I was yeah. about to make. You too, know, too many villains in it. Yeah, it's Spider-Man overstuffed. Spider-Man 3, it's got uh, the second Green Goblin, it's got Venom, it's got Sandman, and it's it's too cartoony, and it's them trying to cram too much in at the same time instead of allowing the story to really breathe. I think the thing I found kind of with the failure of Spider-Man 3 was that... We've seen things like Spider-Verse. Spider-Verse is fucking incredible. It might be the best Spider-Man-related media that there has ever been. And there's probably more Spider-Man heroes and villains in that than anything. I mean, it's not like Infinity War big. And I think Infinity War is a good example, too. That is a, a chock-full-of-stuff movie. And I think, why is it that Infinity War doesn't feel as overstuffed as Spider-Man 3. And I realized that it isn't that there's too many characters. It says there's too many stories in Spider-Man 3 that you have Peter, you know, struggling, wanting to propose to Mary Jane fighting for money. You also have uh, the black suit saga happens. You have all the stuff with Eddie happening, Eddie Brock, who becomes Venom in the same movie. Um, you have the Sandman storyline with his sick daughter. You have all the stuff with Harry finally coming to a head that's been built up for two movies. And it's just also this re- re- like retcon that Sandman is related to the connected to the death of Uncle Ben. Yes. Like, yeah. It's too many stories for one movie. But when you look at there's way more characters in Infinity War, but they're all telling the same story. Well, and they've done tw- 12 years of build up to that story where a lot of the character building and that story that would happen in that movie has already happened in all of the other movies that we've already gotten. So you can literally cut to a giant title card that just says space. Yeah. <laughs> and there are the Guardians of the Galaxy. Don't have to introduce them. No names. It's just here they are. And the story's going. Get on the trolley. But I mean, there's little there's little arcs and stuff like the, the relationships between the characters and all this. But really, there's just one story, which is that, you know, Thanos got to catch them all. <laughs> and I mean, that's really what it is. And it's all about that, that everyone is involved in these different storylines that are all about Thanos trying to grab up all the Infinity Gems. And with Spider-Man 3, everything is fighting for time and they're not given enough oxygen. Like, there's a lot of good things in Spider-Man 3. And actually, even not just the negatives, but I really love the Sam Raimi trilogy having rewatched it. It's clearly one of the only stories that I've ever seen on film, not just in superhero movies, but on film, television, whatever, where somebody has a New York City apartment that's actually realistic based on their income. <laughs> where you don't, you have a common bathroom and a payphone that you have to use, and it's the size of a closet. And the only perk that he has is it's got a it's got a fire escape. That's pretty much it. Yeah, he has a window that doesn't look out into an alleyway. Yeah, and but but to bring it back to to Spider Verse, uh, I you know I think you're right. We have a lot of characters in that movie, like Tombstone and the Green Goblin and Scorpion, Doc who, Ock. Well, not, not even including Doc Ock, but those characters that are literally just in the background and have maybe a line. Yeah, and that's it. And they're not they're there in the story, but they're not part of the story. This is ultimately Miles's story. It's yeah. his origin, and everything that happens is in service of that. Yeah, and then you have sort of layers that Peter is a secondary character, and then Gwen is an even smaller secondary character. And then the other three spider people are just kind of there in the same way that Tombstone and the Scorpion are there. They're there to help out, and they get moments and lines, but the movie isn't really about them. Um, it, it understands what the movie's about. It doesn't 
um, try to make all of these things happen at once. It says, you know, if we want to make a Spider-Ham movie where he's a cartoon pig, we can. We've got the stuff for that. But we didn't need to do a demo reel of Spider-Ham in this movie. You can just include him in someone else's story and give him a couple moments and give him a neat, a neat little sort of intro. But you don't need to stop everything and have a whole other plot line. So yeah. part of it was just the amazing way that the device they used was pretty amazing, which is, OK, this is the last time I'm going to explain this. And they give a montage that happens. And that is just like if you read a, a lot of the title card for a Spider-Man comic book, the title page has maybe four or six panels that said, this is the, this is the shit that happens to bring you up to speed. And now we're dropped right into Peter Parker's story. That device was totally brilliant because how, over how many characters they did for like five different versions of Spider-Man, right? So you had you had Miles, you had all the other Spider-Men, and then in a span of 20 seconds, you had the exact kind of intro saying, hey, they're all a Spider-Person of some sort. They all, uh, you can be introduced to them, and then you can know, okay, I don't need to know anymore. You're going to follow forward with the story. It was brilliant. Utterly yeah. brilliant conception. And it was brilliantly put together. There's a, a behind-the-scenes um, film that talks about when they are in Miles' dorm room, and they're all kind of giving Miles the like final heart-to-heart. Uh, Spider-Ham had a line about the death of his uncle Frankfurter and how he was delicious. <laughs> and that line killed every single time they showed it and they cut it from the movie because it distracted from Miles's emotional scene that what this which is what we're here to do. Yeah. And so they cut it, and it was rightfully cut. Yeah. And they had the good instincts to understand that. You don't just – you have a great moment, but it's not worth the entire whole, that it's it's dis, it, it, it's, it's a dissident moment. Exactly. Yeah, I, I think that's the stuff that really kind of works. I Watching the, the Raimi trilogy again, I love it for, one, how unapologetically weird and Sam Raimi-ish it yeah. is. Yeah. That it's like – we. I said the same thing about um, – Batman Returns is that you never wonder who directed this movie. There's never a moment of like, who is this again? I don't know. No, that movie will not let you get away from knowing. Yeah, this is definitely the Beetlejuice guy. <laughs> it's like, it's definitely there. And I think that there's these Sam Raimi moments, whether it's the, the, the cameos by Bruce Campbell or the um, moments where, Somebody says, like, in a super wonderfully cheesy way, oh, it's Spider-Man, and points off the screen, or somebody screams and the camera zooms into their mouth like they do in the Evil Dead movies. <laughs> um, I love it. I love the the way he, he picks on Peter Parker. He makes it all about the angst. He's a very – he's sort of a very mopey, sad uh, Spider-Man, and he really plays up that sort of uh, mid-70s era of the character um, – I, I love it. I love the the fact that this is one of my favorite things of Spider-Man, period, is Spider-Man interacts with regular people more than most superheroes. Everyone's got an opinion about him. Oh, he's a bum. I saw him do yeah, that. That's one of the best things, in my opinion, about Spider-Man Homecoming is how much time yeah. they spend just in the streets of New York with him being a friendly neighborhood Spider-Man and interacting with people. I love that. And and that, again, that, that bit where it's one of my favorite bits of Spider-Man, period. He's, he's posing on the roof. And these two guys notice him from down there like, hey, you're that spider guy from YouTube. And he goes, hey, Spider-Man, do a flip. And he does. And they're like, yeah. <laughs> and I just love the fact that it's like, hey, I recognize that guy because that's exactly what somebody would do if they saw a superhero. Well, and that guy is the punk from the bus in Star Trek 4. Oh, Jesus. Kirk Thatcher. Yeah. Yes. Oh, my God. Yes. 
I love that. <laughs> oh, I yeah, I love that. Um, I actually like a lot of things about the Andrew Garfield movies. Um, I think there's some good stuff in them. Um, I think they get overcrowded. I like the fact that they let uh, Peter Parker have an arc where he's like a bully at first when he gets his powers. He's like a dick to even Flash Thompson, where you're like, whoa. And even post Uncle Ben, he kind of ha- it's until he has to rescue that kid from the bridge that he realizes this is what it's about. It's not about just like bullying criminals. It's it's that moment where he could become Doc Ock and he backs away from it and realizes this is about making people feel safe. And I do like that element of it. And him and Emma Stone, Andrew Garfield and her have amazing chemistry because, I mean, they're actually dating. But there's movies with people who are actually dating and they have terrible chemistry. So <laughs> this is just good actors, I guess. Uh, so I did like that. But I will say about the Raimi trilogy kind of going back that I will love it forever for the fact that in one scene, they created a, created a trifecta of characters that was aimed directly at me and only me, which is there is a scene that has Spider-Man, Macho Man Randy Savage, and Bruce Campbell all in the same place. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and the, it's got him the for one three. Sin, <laughs> the one sin of Spider-Man 3 that you didn't mention, though. And this came very close to being my low point for the episode is that Spider-Man three, every single character has a crying scene, including (laughs) Harry Osborn's butler. Oh, yeah, that's right. (laughs) I like that Harry Osborn's butler held on to the the revelation that your dad was a bad guy for a really long time. I let my boss have this 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 bile twisted his guts for years but we go oh yeah by the way you're angry at spider-man for no reason i thought i should probably say that now that you've been horribly scarred in a fight with him (laughs) i have to imagine that that butler had a contract where after like so many years like something kicked in where he got like extra like a pension or something like that and he was just waiting for that moment so that his boss didn't fire him before he got that pension what if it's a like a norman osborn nda that he signed it's like (laughs) i know he's a criminal but i can't tell his kid until this thing because i could get sued by oscorp (laughs) it's like oh yeah by the way your dad went crazy and i mean i know you already found his secret stash and you know he's a psychopath but you know you can kind of let go of that that anger it's spider-man now but thinking about what you were saying with uh into the spider-verse and how they they use characters like tombstone like scorpion and how they don't they don't waste time giving these guys origins they just throw them in there i think part of that is through the through the course of time and how sort of mainstream and just how acceptable a lot of these things i think there's just a trust on the part of the studio that we don't need to see, you know, the origin for some of these characters. Like, if if a Spider-Man movie like that was being made today, I think you would introduce a lot of these villains, like in James Bond movies, uh, there's like the pre, the, like the teaser scene, where you would have Spider-Man fighting the Rhino, and we don't need to know the Rhino's origin, because it's not that interesting. You would just have him fighting the Rhino, or Hydro-Man, or the Chameleon, or something like that, for five minutes, and then he, he catches him, smash cut to, you know, the main titles or whatever, and then we pick up with another story. And I, I just think back in, you know, the earlier 2000s when, when Sony was making these movies, they just didn't have the trust. They're like, no, the, the audience is going to walk out if we show Spider-Man fighting Scorpion and they don't know who Scorpion is or how he got that weird tail. So they have to concoct this origin for, for Sandman. It's like, 
you don't need that. That's not what the audience is there for. But yeah, I think, I think that, it took them. I took it. I think it took them a while to get to that point. Yeah, I think they've 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 done a good job with that. I think just throwing that stuff in there. That was a masterfully made movie. I I love Spider Verse, and it's good in a way that isn't just good because this is my favorite superhero. It's good in a way that, as an animation fan, as a filmmaking fan. This thing was up there finally on the same level with the Pixar movies and the movies that Disney was doing where it's like, this is an achievement. This is a technical and writing achievement and the it, well, great and, performances and and the visual achievement, just what they put on the screen on the level of character design from uh, Bilson Kevich's rendition of the Kingpin straight out of yes. da- Daredevil hmm. Love and War. Hmm. Or, you know, the Kirby crackle or the way that all of the different Spider-Man characters are or not Spider-Man characters, spider characters are are animated slightly differently. Like they're all in their own style because they're from their own universe or even on like an animation level where they're they're animating on twos, which if you don't know a lot about animation, movies at 24 frames per, per second animating on twos means you have one frame of animation for every two frames of the film so 12 frames of animation 24 frames of film it goes into one second and they would do this thing where miles and peter are animated on opposite frames so miles moves peter moves miles moves peter moves because they're not in sync with each other and that as they learn to work together and get into sync their animation syncs up Mm. And it's this great little visual indicator to the audience that something isn't right until they work out their issues and then it is right. And there's things like that throughout the movie. It's yeah. a brilliant piece of filmmaking. It's it's gorgeous. And just having 3D animation with 2D animation drawn on top of it, there's elements that are just weirdly comic booky, like having captions and thought bubbles and sound effects pop into it. I mean, even just like the movie starts with the straight up comics code authority logo on this. And I'm like, Oh my God, I love you already. Oh, but I, I think to a certain extent, this is a film that could only be made after 30 years, 28 years, something like that of, almost continuous spider media. Yeah, it has mm. to because it's a reaction to all of it. It's yeah. it, in many ways it does kind of what the Batman Lego movie did, which is it it mm. takes this character and treats him like a cultural meme. It's like, you know, and he's a popsicle. He's an okay popsicle. And I love that. And it's, you know, he's all of these different things. He's a breakfast cereal, you know. And that Spider-Man gets to be a bunch of different things. And it also plays into the idea that anyone could be under the mask, that Spider-Man is sort of this egalitarian hero in a way that a lot of others aren't, that anybody could have been bitten by that spider. Anybody has the opportunity to be that awkward hero that has to sink or swim. And it's that awkwardness and the fact that things aren't easy is why I like Spider-Man so much. And the same thing that they do with Tom Holland in the MCU is they show you how weird it would be to be a kid in this universe, like those Captain America PSA videos are some of my favorite things ever <laughs> with Hannibal Burress playing the gym teacher. And he's like, yeah, yeah. And the state says I have to play this tape. I think he's a war criminal now. <laughs> <laughs> Stuff like that, I think, are great. I'm I'm, imp- I'm actually impressed. I think the uh, the Andrew Garfield 
Spider-Man, while I think Andrew Garfield's a fantastic actor, was sort of it veered off course. I just think it didn't catch people. I don't don't know what the reason why. I think it was poor poor writing would be would be one of them. It felt like a reactive film series. Yeah. Like the first one was kind of I think trying to grab on to sort of the Nolan Batman. Let's, let's ground it and make him sort of a grittier one, wearing a costume that this is what a person would wear if you tried mm. to be Spider-Man. This is what the world would kind of feel like. And I think that they decided, okay, we don't quite want to go there and instead decided to go more Avengers with sort of a big crossover world. It's much more traditionally done than the second one. And, you know, I, it would have been nice if they'd gotten more of a chance to, to find their voice for that series. Cause I think all the people involved are great. Yeah. yeah. But I, just to say I was the, that Tom Holland as a follow-up to it where, uh, you know, my first impression would have been like, wow, Marvel just needs uh, another thing to add to the spectacle because Civil War obviously was a type of a like a media spectacle that had never been seen. And to just sort of throw Spider-Man as the cherry on top of the giant ice cream sundae that was that movie, I was like, well, this is just a stunt. Like, they're just going to throw Spider-Man uh, in there. And it turns out that Tom Holland is like an incredibly charismatic and likable Spider-Man, and when he, spoiler, gets dissolved into ash in uh, in the last Infinity War movie, movie that's like one of the most emotional things in that you are super sad, and he sells that. Tom oh, Holland sells God, that performance. he sells the fear of, I know I'm disintegrating and I'm scared, yeah. and I just need an adult to tell me it's okay, because it reminds you that he's a kid. Yeah. I, I think the big problem with those Andrew Garfield movies, and I think the comparison to Nolan's Batman films is very apt, hmm. is that they were made about five years too late. That there was a very brief moment in time where people were kind of sold on the idea of grounded, realistic superheroes. And I think that that moment passed, and I'm kind of happy about that. Sure. I never liked Nolan's Batman movies. I think they're completely wrongheaded for making a superhero film where you're like, let's strip out everything super about this and make it as realistic as possible. And I don't think that that's right. The moment that the Marvel Cinematic Universe clicked for me is in the first Avengers film when they land on the aircraft carrier, which then launches into the air and turns <laughs> invisible. And it's like you put the shield helicarrier on screen and made it awesome. And it's insane and ridiculous. But within the context of this universe makes perfect sense. And that's the level that you need to hit. And mm -hmm. that's the level that Marvel has consistently hit that where I think DC has missed with these films. DC is not willing historically to lean into the ridiculous comic booky aspects of their universe and well, say, in a universe where this is true, mm -hmm. what is the reality? Well, I, I think they kind of have, I think with Aquaman and Shazam, they've kind of broken from that quite a bit. And I haven't seen those yet, but I would hope that that's true. It, it is. I mean, in Aquaman, you do get to see a, an octopus playing the drums. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. So that's definitely a moment there. And I think that's kind of what you want. Um, the idea of this is a gritty, grounded superhero. The other thing that it does, and I think this is the thing that is at the heart of Watchmen, which is that there's so much realism you can add to a character before it starts to make the whole thing ridiculous. And starts to make them look like assholes. Um, I think that Frank Miller's uh, Batman Year One is as realistic as you can get to still hold on to this character living in a heightened reality. Anything more realistic than that gets it just breaks it. And I think Frank Miller found that exact point where it's like any further and cracks start to form. 
So let's not go further. It's like, think of that as like the, hey, thin ice ahead, stay back <laughs> kind of line. And um, I'm kind of there. So I guess this gets into the final question of our main discussion that I want to throw at you guys, which is there's a hundred different variations of these superhero characters, Spider-Man included. I mean, he's been um, a young African-American teenager. He's been Gwen Stacy. He's been a cartoon pig. He's been a, he's been Tobey Maguire, Andrew Garfield, Tom Holland. He's been all of these things and all of these heroes. Um, what is your Spider-Man? I mean, is it an artist? Is it an actor? Is it a writer, a creator, a movie series? Like, I'll start with you, Ryan. What is your Spider-Man? I'm not sure if I have an sorry, I'm not sure if I have an answer for this, but it does bring up a point of one of the things that I loved the most about Into the Spider Verse was, and the way we talked about how it clearly the the message is that anybody could wear this costume, anybody could be could be Spider Man, but it's also it does something that I don't think any other superhero movie that we've seen, especially with the, the dirge of of superhero movies that we've gotten over the last decade or two is that it's a legacy superhero movie. And for people who've read comics for years, we understand the concept of a legacy hero, but a mainstream general audience might not understand that, but we do, and we see the passing of the torch from Peter Parker to Miles Morales. But what the movie does is it doesn't it doesn't really kill off Peter Parker. It tells you that if your Peter if your Spider-Man is Peter Parker, He's still out there. That That is still the, a legitimate Spider-Man. If you like the Andrew Garfield Spider-Man movies, that's still part of the Spider-Man canon. If you like Tobey Maguire or Tom Holland or the, you know, the 1960s t- cartoon or something like that, whatever Spider-Man you'd like is the right answer. It, it's, it's whatever you prefer because it all counts. It's all part of this giant web, to use it. Uh, and... and one of the things that came out of that movie on Twitter, especially, and it might have been on Instagram too, was there was this whole thing. If you look it up, hashtag Spider Sona. Oh, yeah. And it's like, look for what is your Spider Sona? And it was a way of a lot of professional and amateur artists to envision parts of themselves, their identity, with the Spider-Man aesthetic. So it might be them wearing a web, like the the web covered, like hoodie or something like that, or wearing you know a, a dress or something like that. But it has the web shape. I know one particular artist drew himself with a long Alan Moore style beard, but the beard was just made of the webs or something like that. So there's just this way of finding what is great about the character and, and the way that you identify with it. Um, so what is my Spider-Man? I mean, I think I will always default back to the comics and the sort of main Marvel universe. Um, certainly the, the kind of older one. Like, I think, I think there is something special about Spider-Man being a little bit younger, a little bit less mature than the Fantastic Four and Iron Man and the Avengers and a little bit of that outsider. But, I mean, gosh, it's... If there's anything about Into the Spider-Verse, it's it's kind of like, I don't want to have an answer for this question because I don't want to limit myself to one Spider-Man. I want to have it all, and I think it's okay to do that. I, I think that that is an excellent answer. I, I grew up with Peter Parker, and especially Spider-Man the Animated Series from the early 90s was a lot of my formative view of Spider-Man, even as I was reading the comics. 
In my heart of hearts, though, my one true Spider-Man is Miguel O'Hara, Spider-Man 2099. Oh, yeah. I, I, I was raised in a science fiction household, and the idea of a cyberpunk Spider-Man in the distant future <laughs> just filled me with a kind of joy that I don't know has ever been truly replicated. You know, he was he was a little bit of a meaner Spider-Man, a little bit of an edgier Spider-Man. He didn't he was not plagued with that same kind of guilt that Peter Parker was. And it allowed him to do a lot of different things. And at the time, I found that incredibly interesting and freeing. Yeah, that that was the first kind of introduction I had to this idea that there can be many Spider-Men. Yeah. Did you stick around to the end of the credits of Spider-Verse? Oh, of course I did. <laughs> I think you'll be very happy. I was, I was so happy. <laughs> That's Oscar Isaac, by the yeah. way. <laughs> that was really cool. So, Casey? Uh, I don't know if I have one. I think my interest peaked, like, with Tobiah and the 94 Fox television show. And I think I was just a sponge for everything that was animation at that time in my life. Um, I want to say... Uh, an alternate answer here is so since I have a six-year-old now and uh, Mike knows because Mike has donated like a yeah, a carload full of old superhero toys that he no longer wants to have on my kid and I've got just like burgeoning coffers full of old toys. I have to say that the 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 type of Spider-Man that is most relevant in my life now are when my son and I will get down on the floor and we'll have you know like Imaginext I think does some of these toys where it's they they're both DC and Marvel, so it can be Superman and, and Batman in a story with Spider-Man, where of course he's wanting me to do the lion's share of the sort of uh, the acting and the dramatic sort of weaving. So it's my, my Spider-Man really is is just the trying to improvise a story with tiny little like inch and a half tall figures <laughs> with my son on the floor, and it's fun, and it's especially fun because I don't know the character a Spider-Man well enough to weave a great story enough to write a comic book, but I would know it well enough to know how Peter Parker would probably interact with Superman knowing that he's meeting a guy who's so much better than he is. So it's to me, it's just, it's like the character is so fungible that you could make it, you, you like every other kid who's ever owned a Spider-Man mask or a Spider-Man toy, just can imagine you being a Spider-Man and can embody it in those moments. And it doesn't matter because it's Spider-Man. Oh, wow. So I think for me, and I want to give a quick runner up to... The Into the Spider Verse is a uh, 38 year old Peter uh, B. Parker. Peter B. Parker, <laughs> who is just you know sp- you know anybody can be under the mask, and I you know hashtag representation matters, and I I think it's awesome when you see footage of kids that aren't used to seeing themselves as superheroes in the movie get to experience that, and I know what that's like because I get to see a schlubby middle aged guy also be the superhero. <laughs> And it, it just felt good in that moment. But I got to say, my my answer is, uh, my Spider-Man is the art of John Romita Sr. Hmm. That John Romita has sort of an unenviable task that he had to be the second artist to draw Spider-Man after um, Steve Ditko left the book after 38 issues and two annuals. And uh, it Ditko had such a idiosyncratic style. And I think that when you start at the history of Marvel... There were two poles of artistic style. There's Steve Ditko and Jack Kirby. And that Jack Kirby was always the guy that drew these like crazy, over the top, technological, mythological worlds full of heroes and gods. And, um, they just looked, everything looked amazing and credible and over the top. Then you had Steve Ditko, which was always weirdly more grounded and strange. And people were more freakish and weird and, and trippy. And, 
that I think that Romita was really the guy that could square that circle because whenever Jack Kirby, as awesome as he is, tried to draw Spider-Man, it always looked off. I, I actually just read a quote, and I can't recall from who. It might have actually been John Romita saying, in the early days of Marvel, Stan wanted Jack to be Jack, he wanted Steve to be Steve, and he wanted everybody else to be Jack. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. It's when you have to suddenly draw this character, because I think maybe it's the poses of him, of Spider-Man, that just didn't gel with what Jack Kirby did. Because when you see Jack Kirby draw Thor or the Fantastic Four, it just looks right. It just clicks. In the same way you can see Ditko draw Spider-Man, it's just like, oh, this guy is different than the other superheroes. But Romina found a way to square that circle. How to draw someone that was more traditionally proportioned and drawn and iconic the way a superhero would look on a lunchbox, but still had those crazy poses and all the angst. And when I see that Romita version of the character, it just looks right. It just looks right. It feels right. And that's the reason why Romita is still the artist who has Spider-Man on all the t-shirts and, and lunch boxes and coloring books that you still see that art style. And it just feels timeless. It feels right. It's like when, uh, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, uh, <laughs> does, um, the DC characters on all of the, all of the merch. It just looks right. And I think Romita is that for Spider-Man. So let's take a quick break. We'll be back in just a little bit with High Point, Low Point. I'm Tobiah. And I'm Joe. The House of Jack and Stan is a podcast about history, Marvel Comics, and Marvel Comics history. Join us as we explore the universe of Jack Kirby and Stan Lee from the beginning starting with Fantastic Four number one, released in 1961. Along the way, we discover the origins and evolution of classic Marvel characters like Spider-Man, Iron Man, and the X-Men. We also discuss the real history that was unfolding at the same time, like the Cuban Missile Crisis, hit movies and music, and the Civil Rights Movement. You can find The House of Jack and Stan on iTunes, Google Play, at thehouseofjackandstan.com, or anywhere else you find fine podcasts. And we're back on Radio vs. the Martians. We are talking about that webbed menace, Spider-Man. <laughs> and it's time to talk about high point, low point, where you go to the top of the mountain, the bottom of the barrel. We're talking Spider-Man. We're going to start low. Ryan, what is the low point of Spider-Man? Uh, I tried to I tried to focus on the comics for this one just because it seemed easier. And I already mentioned Spider Man three with everybody crying, including the butler. So <laughs> for the, for the comics, uh, I mean, I think a lot of people who stuck with the character for the longest time would point to uh, the kind of arc between Sin's past to One More Day, written by J. Michael Straczynski, who the beginning of his run I actually think was really really strong, and I think he had a good voice for Spider Man and Peter Parker, and I think he did some interesting things. But he did something terrible when he brought back Gwen Stacy, or, or revealed that Gwen Stacy had had an affair with Norman Osborn, and you. everything just kind of went off the rails from there, and then the the deal with the devil with One More Day. Um, I, I also think there's something else that was a, not as obvious a low point, but between, say, 2004 and 2012... 
there was just a real saturation and overexposure of Spider-Man in comics. Now, this is one of Marvel's greatest problems that they keep going back to, aside from constantly renumbering their series, is when they've got a hot character, they put it everywhere, whether it's Spider-Man, Wolverine, or Deadpool, or whatever. But for like seven or eight years in the mid-aughts, Spider-Man, who is this perennial like loner who's just defined by being the outsider and not the team player who is never really a, a mainstay of the Avengers or anything. He joined the Fantastic Four. He joined the Avengers. There was a book called Spider-Man and the X-Men. There was a book called like uh, Spider-Man and Wolverine. Like he was on every team and in like 10 solo books or team-ups or something. It was just you could not get away from him. So I think that type of overexposure and just it, that's that's the kind of thing that a serious Spider-Man fan would look at and just say, "Dude, enough! I got to step back from this character and go read like something else." So that that's kind of the low point for me was when I got like, "Do you understand that Spider-Man doesn't belong on teams and you've put him on five teams?" <laughs> so but yeah, that that was that was for me the low point. Uh, I was really going to say the slog of having to read through Silver Age comics, which I know is total sacrilege. And just in this conversation, I can't... Oh, that's the sound of a door slamming? Yes. yes. <laughs> I, I can't, like, uh, especially after hearing Tobiah, you and uh, other previous panelist, uh, Joe Preddy, doing your show on Marvel history, I have so much respect for what it is that they achieved doing it. So I th- I'm moving this. I'm moving the Overton window here, and instead I'm just going to say Paul Giamatti as the rhino in the last 45 seconds <laughs> of a Amazing Spider-Man 2, only because Paul Giamatti is my personal messiah, and you really couldn't have given him anything worse for his first foray into a superhero movie than him screaming in in a sort of weird CGI, I don't know, I mean, they just obviously scanned his face and then put it on a giant CGI model of the rhino, looking weirdly conspicuous. For the rest of the look of that movie, the rhino did not look like it belonged there. Especially because if you're going to make... Paul Giamatti, a Spider-Man villain. It's Doc fucking Ock. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> Clearly. It's, right, it's right there. But my low point is just don't waste Paul Giamatti, and they did. Oh, man. So oh. I'm going to give a quick shout-out to what Joe would answer were he here, which is Aunt May in her entirety. <laughs> oh. That is not my answer, though. Um, and I do want to say for the record, part of the thesis of the show that Joe and I do is that we're reading The Silver Age, so you don't have to. <laughs> uh, you're welcome. Um, so Thank you, Tobias. I, I agree with what Ryan said. Uh, One More Day was at the top of my list for Spider-Man Naders, and I think it is the most recent Nader of Spider-Man. Uh, and I'm, So I'm going to go to the one immediately preceding that, in 1998, Ooh. immediately post onslaught, um, Ben Riley, the Spider Clone, dyed his hair blonde and took over as Spider Man, so that Peter Parker and Mary Jane could go live in retirement with the baby that they never actually ended up having. <laughs> um, when it was retitled the Sensational Spider Man. And this is when he got the costume with the external web shooters that was later repurposed for May Parker, the uh, spider spider girl girl yeah. uh, for the M2 imprint. Uh, and just creatively on every level, Marvel was doing 
super bad in 1998. This is the period where they did Heroes Reborn with all of the Rob Liefeld designs for all of their superheroes, where they were off in a pocket dimension. It was the Scott Lobdell and I think Chuck Austin era of X-Men. Like, yeah, just everything at Marvel was bad in 1998, Spider-Man included. The the fact that you're going to get rid of Peter Parker entirely, he's completely out of the book, but you're going to replace him with somebody who is also Peter Parker and has most of Peter Parker's memories, but has been out of the picture for years and like doesn't really like know people or you know share memories with them of things that Spider-Man has done, but he is quote unquote Spider-Man. Like everything about it was weird and none of it worked. Yeah, and they undid all of it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's pretty low. Um, I'm going to say that my low point is the revelation that Richard and Mary Parker were international super spies. <laughs> that is a great one. And this is from Amazing Spider-Man Annual number 5 in 1968. This is a Stanley creation. So, you know, even the creator can get stuff wrong. Um, oh, boy. Yeah, this is just... Spider-Man is a character, the heart of Spider-Man is a character, is that he was a normal guy before he was bitten. That the KT boundary between the Peter Parker that was and Spider-Man is that spider bite. There is no part of his life that's even somewhat similar. That he would never work for the Daily Bugle. He wouldn't meet half of the people that he met. He probably would go to a better college. Um, everything in his life would have changed. Oh, come on. Yes, he was a good school. Yes, he was not a bad school, <laughs> but he can do a lot better. I mean, he could have been in Reed Richards' caliber if he'd had a chance, I think. I, I do want to take a very brief aside and mention one of my favorite Spider-Man moments in recent years is when he was on the Fantastic Four when mm-hmm. Johnny Storm was dead. And so they pull him into the Future Foundation, which is all these genius kids, and they're talking about some super scientific thing. And Spider-Man just like rattles off this really complicated science answer. Yeah, and he knows all it. of these kids are blown away. Like Spider-Man is smart. <laughs> yeah, but since when is Spider-Man smart? Yeah, because he's a giant pile of wasted potential. That's, right, that's really what he is. That uh, you know, again, anyone can wear the mask. Not everyone can be in particle physics. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think that, that that KT boundary, that crazy life that that he has, started the minute with that spider bit him, but. If suddenly his parents have this James Bond international man and woman of mystery life where they were recruited by Nick Fury, they went on a mission and met Wolverine once, that they were eventually killed by the second Red Skull. I mean, that means that Peter Parker was always destined to have this kind of crazy life. And it's different than the, you know, you have a lot of orphan heroes. I mean, it's Harry Potter, King Arthur, Superman, but... The thing that I hate the most in that trope is finding out that not only were your parents just a kindly couple who died off camera in a car accident, but they have to be the most incredible people ever. I mean, there really is no reason for Richard and Mary Parker to even be characters. Because for all intents and purposes, Ben and May Parker were his parents. They're the ones that raised him. They're the ones whose values were imprinted on him to make the decisions he makes as Spider-Man. I mean, the best thing that Richard and Mary Parker can be is a, a photograph that's on a mantle that he looks at every so often. They're Jor-El and Lara-El. Like, yeah. just as Superman parents are Jonathan and Martha Kent, Spider-Man's yep. parents are 
uh, Aunt May and Uncle Ben. Yeah, that's those are his real parents, and there's no reason to bring other things into it. And that's a hard part about the Marvel Universe, because someone will always bring back the smallest thing. And, you know, the version that they did of it in the Amazing Spider-Man films, where they're scientists that are caught up in a corporate conspiracy, is better than that. But I kind of want Peter to have had a possibly normal life at some point, but that you had this level of destiny for this crazy life. And it just throws me off. It just kind of betrays the heart of what the character of Spider-Man is. So that's my low point. I, I, they shouldn't be spies. Matt, that's also just Alex Kurtzman and Roberto Orsi, Orsi's conceit that they have to use in literally everything is that their characters must always be destined to be heroes. So, of course, that's why it ends up in Amazing Spider-Man. Yeah, it's 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 kind of similar, I think, in a weird way to the Mary Jane as a globe-trotting supermodel is that the Sam Raimi version of, you know, Mary Jane as a struggling actress is a lot better as a match for Peter Parker because – if suddenly he's married to someone who's jetting around the world and getting paid really well, he doesn't need a job. He can just be Spider-Man. He just has to get over this bullshit antiquated gender norms that are bothering him and just go out and be Spider-Man. Your wife understands. Like, you fought the fucking rhino. She's not going to judge you, man. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's my low point. So let's let's pull ourselves out of the gutter. It's time to do high point. What is the best part of this character? Uh, Tobias, I want to start with you. Uh, so again, I have a list cause I can't just pick one. Um, and we've hit, I think pretty much everything on my list. And so I'm just going to go for the very top bullet point. It's something that we touched on briefly, but didn't really talk about. So my high point for Spider-Man is amazing Spider-Man number 250 to 300, which is the black suit era of Spider-Man from when he got the symbiote in secret wars until he ditches it for the red and blues after venom shows up and published from 1984 to 1988 and this is home to a lot of the most well-remembered storylines for spider-man from craven's last hunt uh, to the scourge of the underworld to the revelation of the hobgoblin's true identity which was a very long-running mystery throughout spider-man and later retconned and later retconned <laughs> and then probably retconned again yeah um, and it's just it's it's an incredible era. It was a huge change for the character. And I think it still stands as one of the great like chunks of superhero storytelling of the entire canon of superheroes. Ryan. Uh, first, I we, we were kind of talking about with the whole costume and everything. How cool is it that Spider-Man has had not one, but at least two iconic costumes that are both pretty universally loved, whether it's like the classic red and blue look or the black costume, which we've said is a great visual design and it's a great look. Like, he's had two really cool costumes. Like, other superheroes have gone through changes, and I don't think they've been through as successfully transitioned as Spider-Man has had with those two different looks. And and I think we, we were sort of touching on this, but I don't think we quite got to it. Like, the the Spider-Man, the black costume with just those little white, we, we said that it doesn't really fit Spider-Man's personality. It's sort of, it's a little bit too dark, and he's kind of, we like the Spider-Man that quibbles, that has kind of like these these normal kind of annoyances and, and a little bit more grounded. If we knew nothing about Peter Parker, if we knew nothing about his life, if I just said, Casey, create a character called Spider-Man, what type of costume would you go for? 
you probably would think more of like a, a darker, scarier, pulpy type of character because yeah. that's kind of what you think of with, with Spider-Man. So the black costume might be more in line with what you would think of for Spider-Man if you didn't know everything about Peter Parker and his baggage and his stories like up to that point. And I think it's telling like like when when Stanley first came up with the character, he uh, Jack Kirby did a pitch for a Spider-Man costume. And it looked like a pulp hero type of thing, and and it was rejected, and go, they went with Steve Ditko instead. So I do think that is kind of interesting. Like the 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 black costume for Spider Man feels a little bit more like a darker, pulpier what you might associate with Spider Man, uh, somebody with a spider motif. But that's just that's not who Peter is, and that's not what he brings to the adventure. Um, so that is, that does actually kind of lead into my high point, which I, I was going to mention a few comics, and it's funny that Tobias mentioned starting with 250, because one of the comics that I wanted to single out was issue 248, <laughs> which is uh, from the Assistant Editor's Month. It's, it's uh, two different stories. The first one is uh, Spider-Man fighting Thunderball. The second story is this classic narrative of the boy who collects Spider-Man, or the kid who collects Spider-Man. And it's about Peter, you know, or Spider-Man visiting this little kid in his bedroom, and this kid is showing him all of, like, the different newspaper clippings and all of these things that he's found out, and he's he's learning about Spider-Man's story and his origin and his adventures, and at the end, he's like, will you tell me who you are? And he's like, I promise I'll never tell him, and Peter balks at it, he's like, I, I can't, too many people are lives on and the kid is like, you know, for, I swear for the rest of my life, I'll never tell a soul. And Peter finally, he takes off his mask and he reveals his name is Peter Parker. This is who he is and everything. And Peter leaves the kid there to go to, it's, you know, past his bedtime. And Peter swings away and he kind of stops and he starts crying because where he met this kid was a cancer institute. The boy has weeks to live. That's why, like, he, like, like Peter read this in a newspaper in the Daily Bugle that there's this kid who Spider-Man is his greatest hero and he just wants to meet him once before he dies. Uh, so it's a, it's a heartbreaking story. But getting back to sort of the high points, there's the whole nature of the costume anyway, and and Stanley has talked about it that the great thing about the visual that Steve Ditko created was the mask covers the entire face. And that lends itself to the the message of Into the Spider-Verse that anybody could be Spider-Man. And Stan knew it, that, you know, Peter Parker will always have the life and the, the misadventures of a white kid from Queens. But when he's in that costume, it doesn't matter if you're black, if you're white, if you're Latino or Asian American or wherever you come from, male or female, you can project yourself into that costume. And that's what really works. Uh, so I think that has to be the high point, but as a as a one A like a sort of side point, I just want to mention something that Mike you mentioned in your monologue. How Spider Man travels, it's just so unique. Swinging the web, slinging and swinging from rooftop. There's just something so cool about that, and that would be if I was Spider Man, that would be the first thing I would do. Fear of heights be damned, I would just start swinging around the neighborhood, because like when I think of Star Wars, my favorite part is always Luke and Leia swinging across the Death Star chasm. There's something swashbuckling about that that just seems fun, and that's what that's how Spider-Man lives. It's so cool. So that would be like my secondary high point. Uh, I, I guess I'm like a, like a, a five-year-old here, you know, that says, you ask them what their favorite movie is, and always the last movie they saw was their favorite movie. Um, it's into the spider verse for me for a lot of the reasons that we've said before. And I told you this on the phone, Mike, before, after I saw the first trailer and before we actually saw the movie is that I felt like this felt, this felt to me like the way Batman, the animated series was for us, which was 
It was a time when it was realized in the form of animation in a way that not only were you not expecting and that was incredibly unique and transformative for the medium, um, but also got people hooked, made people care about the character, made people want more. And I still think I say I said and I still think that a million plus more kids are going to want to be illustrators or animators or filmmakers because of that movie, because of how what a treasure trove of just sort of artistry of artifice that movie actually is making a biracial teen as the POV character is amazing. And then populating the story with like the spider people as sort of a way to show the multiple facets of what Spider-Man actually is. In the age of the remix movie, I think this rides the line better than any of like big franchise property that I've seen in the current era of being able to make it fr- feel fresh and interesting and make you want to revisit it and make you excited for how they'll how Miles Morales as a character will move forward, what they will do with the, the if they're going to make a next incarnation, which how could they not? Mm-hmm. Um, it won the it won the Academy Award. It won the Academy Award. Well earned. When was the la- was there ever a time when a an, an animated superhero movie was nominated for an Academy Award? I don't think so. No. Right? Is this the very first time? It's got to be. It elevates the genre of superhero movies. I think it elevates the genre of at of any kind of fictional adaptation into an animated film in a way that I could not have expected, and I makes me want to watch it more and more. So that's my high point. It's so good. It's so good. Oh man, um, I don't know how to follow that up. I'd say my high point. My high point is the publisher of the Daily Bugle, <laughs> Mister J. Jonah Jameson, and I legitimately think that he is one of the greatest comic book characters that has ever been created. Um, I love him. I mean, he, was, he had a perfect um, portrayal on film by J.K. Simmons, who's one of my favorite actors in the Raimi trilogy. Um, he's one of my favorite things in a movie ever. I think that Jameson is like Donald Duck in the sense that he always seems to exist at emotional extremes. That Donald Duck is either singing a happy tune or he's spitting angry. There's no real in between, and that's how Jameson is. Jameson is either gloating and smug or he is livid. And what I love is that on the very service level, he's like a cartoon character. He hates Spider-Man. He's jealous of Spider-Man. He's obsessed with with exposing Spider-Man to the world as the menace that he is. But it's the the weird kind of mix of contradictions and occasional like nuance and vulnerability that the character has that makes you go, okay, wow, I didn't expect that. There's a scene in the first Sam Raimi Spider-Man where the Green Goblin bursts through the wall of the office of Jameson, grabs him by the throat, and demands to know who the photographer is that sells the photographs of Spider-Man. Peter is sitting in a chair not two feet away from Jameson, and Jameson lies to the Goblin's face. Oh, you sent him in through the mail. I don't know who it is. That changes your perspective of that character very quickly. You're like, holy shit, he could have thrown Peter under the bus and he doesn't. That this guy, you know, for all his bluster and all the fact that he can occasionally be cowardly, has got a set of balls on him. Have you have you been reading any of the Spectacular Spider-Man comics that have come out in the last, I'd say, year and a half? The Chip Zdarsky stuff? Yeah. It's great. He does great stuff with Jonah. Because in, in the comics, Aunt May married Jonah's 
father, mm-hmm. me, which means that Jonah and Peter are like cousins by marriage. Yeah, <laughs> and there's a there's an issue where Peter reveals his identity to Jonah, and Jonah becomes as fierce of a crusader for, for Spider Man as he was previously against him. To the detriment of, of his secret identity, yeah, yeah and it's great. It's amazingly well done because it is so true to the character of Jonah while inverting so much of who he has been. And also nitpick Spider-Man, like, you need to do this, you should stop that criminal, and blah, 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 Spider-Man is not going to be, he's like, whoa, dude. <laughs> it's like, I think it was a thing with a Sandman, looks like he's he's hurt and he's in trouble, and Peter's like, I just want to talk to the guy. And he's like, no, you should take him down, blah, 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 blah. He's like, whoa, yeah, Jonah. Jonah has no chill. <laughs> that he's kind of the opposite of Peter, where Peter is all doubt. Jonah's no doubt. Jonah is absolutely certain of of the things, and it's those smug moments where he tries to throw himself into the center frame on every sort of situation that I love. He's, like, rigid and vengeful, but one of the moments I love in early Spider-Man comics with him is there's a character named Frederick Foswell, and Frederick Foswell is a reporter for the Daily Bugle who is revealed to be the secret identity of the big man who is this crime boss who wears a mask. Uh, He's thrown in jail... And he comes out seemingly reformed. And Peter doesn't buy it for a second. Peter knows that he's onto something and he's going to get back into crime. And Jonah forgives him. He said, you did your time. He gives him his job back and gives him a second chance. It's something Peter never did. And Peter refuses to believe that this guy has changed. He refuses to think that this guy could be anything other than a criminal. And... Foswell ultimately sacrifices himself and takes a bullet from one of Kingpin's men to save Jonah's life. And that's the thing with with Jonah, that that there's that aspect of him that's forgiving in a way. He's like, maybe he'd forgive Spider-Man if Spider-Man just owned up to all his shit. And he says, oh, he's unforgivable. You know, he's just, I love that about Jonah. I think he's hilarious. I think he's crazy. Um, But I think the best use of Jonah ever was in a 2004 issue of She-Hulk. Is She-Hulk number four. And then it's a story where She-Hulk, who in her civilian identity as Jennifer Walters, is a high-class attorney. Um, one of her fellow attorneys was saved by Spider-Man years ago and wants to do something nice for him. And he finds a legal loophole that will allow Spider-Man to sue the Daily Bugle and J. Jonah Jameson without revealing his secret identity. And what unfolds is this incredible courtroom drama that just does comic book continuity better than anything I've ever seen, where he just lays out how fucking absurd the relationship between these two characters is. Well, Mr. Jameson, it seems here you've created two separate (laughs) supervillains to try to destroy Spider-Man. It's like, okay, so the the scorpion is a thing because of you. The spider slayers are a thing because of you. And they just, it lays how absurd it is. And what I love is that the, um, that um, the 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 attorney is just like, oh man, we got Jameson on the ropes. We really gonna ratchet this up, and he says, yeah, we should make Peter Parker a co defendant. He's making all that money off those pictures of you. <laughs> and Spider Man's like, ah, 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 ah. <laughs> so he doesn't say no, and suddenly. Peter Parker's on the stand, too, and he's possibly on the hook for all of these reparations to Spider-Man. <laughs> and Spider-Man has to – is just like, uh, uh. And he basically, in the end, has to come up with a way to both settle in a way that's humiliating to both Jonah and Peter, but also not 
throw him in the poorhouse. And it's this beautiful Parker Luck kind of ending. <laughs> and it just sums up how awesome this character is. There's no one else in comics like Jameson. And and I'm gonna say this, they they've the the J.K. Simmons version of that character was so utterly perfect that I think that they've been afraid to cast him again. And I'd say, you know, let's get Jameson in another Spider-Man movie. And if we can't get Simmons again and we got to cast somebody else, I'm going to throw it out there. Keegan, Michael key. Yeah. I think yes. it'd be really fun as J Jonah Jameson. <laughs> it's like you watch the Mr. Garvey sketches and stuff like that. How can you be that funny and that angry at the same time without being scary? And just imagine him screaming about Spider-Man. <laughs> so this character, this awesome, infuriating, hilarious nuanced character J. Jonah Jameson is my high point and he's one of the best parts of Spider-Man and his entire mythos. Can I just tag on to that? Going back to the uh, Spider-Man the Animated Series from the early 90s J. Jonah Jameson voiced by Ed Asner. Yeah. Beautiful. Which was yeah. a beautiful be- bit of casting. Oh I love it. Perfect character. One of I, I love him more than almost anything else in comic books. So I want to thank you guys for being a part of this panel. This panel, by the way, was voted on by our patrons at patreon.com. So this was a a topic that was chosen. If you want to possibly get in on a vote like that in the future, patreon.com slash radio versus the Martians. Mr. Ryan Daly of Batman Nightcast, it has been a pleasure to have you on, sir. Thank you very, very much for having me. Um, even I, I was championing this topic, too, so I'm, I'm glad that I could be part of it. And if folks want to see more of what you're doing online, where should they look? Uh, you can find me or hear more from me on the Fire & Water Podcast Network. I have several shows, which you have mentioned. Cheers Cast, which I go episode by episode through my favorite TV show, Cheers. Batman Nightcast, which has been on a hiatus, but it will return uh, midnight the podcasting hour. I look at some uh, 80s horror comics from DC and uh, just recently launched Fire and Water Records, uh, which is an anthology title from a lot of people here on the Fire and Water Network. Um, but certainly a lot of the episodes are going to be me and my brother talking about a lot of the music that shaped our lives when we were younger. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And uh, Mr. Tobias Panchin. Uh, from, of course, View from the Gutters and the House of Jack and Stan comic book podcast. Um, where can people find the stuff you're working on? Uh, so you can find us at viewfromthegutters.com or thehouseofjackandstan.com. Both URLs will take you to the website. Uh, the View from the Gutters comic book club is not currently updating, uh, although we may have some new episodes in the pipe. Hmm. Uh, and of course, the House of Jack and Stan is updating every other week where you can find episodes talking about both the events of Silver Age Marvel comics and the real world history that was going on at the same time, uh, both from our website and wherever fine podcasts are found. And as always, Casey Doran, thank you, sir. Yes, Mike, uh, I will forever be a webhead now because of you. So Yay! thank you. We got one of the converted. <laughs> And a special thanks to our episode sponsors over on Patreon, uh, Larry Brunswick, Margaret King, Tim Batson, Zuri Russell, Sterling Taylor, Tom the Belgian, and two new ones oh, this month, really? Gus Lindgren and Mike Seibert. So, thanks, Gus and Mike. Oh, really? Thank you. Welcome to the family. Awesome. And if you want to become an episode sponsor, check us out on patreon.com slash radio versus the Martians or on radio versus the Martians.com. Um, a bit of behind the scenes a little bit. Uh, this episode is being recorded two days before my 40th birthday. And if I want one thing from our listeners is 
If you think we're not garbage people, <laughs> uh, drop us a buck a month over on patreon.com slash radio versus the Martians. If we had a dollar for every download we got last month, we'd be able to do this professionally. That's yeah. that's where we're at, and it's it's very exciting. So please go on there. Maybe you'll get to vote on an episode like this yourself in the future, or ask questions that we might answer on a fun size episode as well. Those are great. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of you have access to exclusive episodes. We get a lot more raw on there. I think we get weird. <laughs> so please check us out, RadioVersusTheMartians dot com and patreon.com slash radio versus the martians we love you folks we'll catch you all next month radio versus the martians is hosted by mike gillis and casey doran this podcast is recorded in beautiful valverde in seattle washington our chief engineer is casey doran and our editor is mike gillis our original theme music is written and performed by james wetzel special thanks to sam mulvey rob kelly james wetzel paul rue Tobias Panshin, Scott Kramer, Kyle Hepworth, and Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Please take the time to rate and review our show on iTunes and Stitcher, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please consider becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. Even just a dollar a month gives you access to exclusive episodes. And you can always find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. Fire!